When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I'm about to do something that probably breaks seven rules of podcasting. And I don't know all of them that might break more. But here's the deal. I'm doing an intro to an intro to an intro because this will be a two-hour podcast. And again, I know nobody puts out a two-hour podcast. It's just dumb. But this is a conversation I had with Pete Rose a couple of years ago. And while we certainly get into gambling and his mistakes, I will explain a little bit of our history in the intro to the intro, or maybe the third intro. I don't know. I'll get into that. But this is about his baseball career. So let me just explain why we're doing this in its entirety. How did Pete Rose end up in Vietnam with Joe DiMaggio? Why does Pete Rose respect Willie Mays and Hank Aaron, not just for their baseball playing abilities, but for other reasons? What is Pete Rose's all-time teammate team? Now, Pete, love him or hate him, and there are people who sit on absolutely both sides of the fence. It's crowded on both sides of that fence. He's supposed to be in, he's not supposed to be in, whatever. Take all of that out. Nobody knows their career more than Pete Rose knows his. And you'll hear throughout this entirety of this interview, this conversation, because that's really what it did turn out to be. It is a conversation. And by the way, there's a little bit of language. It's a little bit of language in this one. I also want to tell you that. That's probably why I'm doing this as well. A little bit of language if you've got kids in the car or wherever you're listening to this. Not that there's words that they haven't heard before, but whatever. There's my warning. There's so much in this. And Pete can tell you the dates, the times, the pitchers, the hits, how many records he broke. This many records are still his. Some people despise that about Pete Rose. Other people, though, okay, that's Pete. And again, at the end of the day, this is Pete. Warts and all. So I just wanted to let you know, a little bit of language. It's way too long, but I think everything had to be included in it because I don't know the last time Pete did a baseball conversation or how many of these he's done. So there it is. I'm just going to tell you. The people who put these podcasts out are about to find out I sent them a two-hour-plus podcast. Yep. That's what I did. I think you guys, you're going to enjoy it. You don't have to be a Pete hater or a Pete lover. I just think you have to appreciate his career, the people he played with, the people he played against, and the conversations about those things, more so than maybe the hot fire takes that have come about. And I, and I do think you'll hear different things about his father and, and 
why he is who he is and what he thinks when all is said and done. Remember, this is a couple of years ago during COVID, really the height of COVID, that we had a chance to sit down and have this conversation. So I, I hope you enjoy it. If you listen to it in bursts, I get that too. Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hit deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Andy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continued trek through Major League Baseball history as we speak to some of the greatest players of all time and others whose stories found them in the middle of some of the game's greatest teams, seasons, and moments. Thanks for finding us and making Hardball part of your podcast world. And if you enjoy what you hear today, hope you go back and listen to some previous episodes. Tell some friends about us. If you're on social media, on a baseball Facebook page or two, or just a friendly tweet, it's appreciated. And if you have a minute, please rate and review on Apple, as that will also help other baseball fans find us. If you're new to what we're doing here and where Hardball sprung up from, here's the Reader's Digest version. These are conversations that date back as far as 20 years, and now include new sit-downs with people such as today's guest. I say as often as possible, I've never thought of these as interviews, or Q&As, or depositions. I've always thought of the time spent with these men as a chance to fill in the blanks of their lives, their careers, and asking them, and in turn, they hopefully ask me to pull up a chair to perhaps make a new baseball friend. I just look back at the list of the first 25 episodes. 17 Hall of Famers and the others all hold incredible places, both personally and collectively, in the game's history. And while some of these stories have been told by old-school newspaper men and Hall of Fame broadcasters and writers, I've always found that for the most part, these men and their ability to tell their own story and even more enthusiastically tell the stories of their teammates will bring out some that have never been told previously. The wins and the losses and insight as to what they meant as the years have gone by. Which brings us to today's guest, Peter Edward Rose, Charlie Hustle, The Hit King, and more. An episode a while in the making. There's a history with Pete and I and includes being shut out by Pete's people for years because they said I wasn't a Pete guy. That's code for having told Pete that I knew he bet on baseball in a previous interview and told him why I didn't guess that but knew it. Gamblers bet on things they know. They try to gain every advantage by attempting to learn everything they can about where they are putting their money. So I told Pete that if you're betting on football, or my God, horses and dogs, he would have had to have been the dumbest gambler in the history of the world if he didn't bet on baseball. He then told me he would prove to me he didn't. Well, here's where we stand this many years later. 20 years later, and we had a chance to sit down and talk about his career. That conversation, the conversation that hadn't been heard often enough, the baseball conversation, Pete Rose the player, his roots, his father's influence on him as a player, the idea that he didn't have much ability but worked his way to greatness, all-time greatness, how much of that was true, 
We will mention some of his troubles, but I promise this isn't that. This is the Reds, the World Series, All-Star Games, hitting streaks, teammates, and ultimately how he views his career today. Moment of truth. I spoke to Pete at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon and set this up for 7 o'clock that night, and I put it at about 40% that he would pick up. And if he did, give me the time that might take to do this right. Not only did he pick up, but two hours later we were saying goodnight. He has thoughts on today's game and his place in its history. And while you can say many things about Pete, here's one thing that sets him apart from some others that the Hall of Fame voters have turned their backs on. Pete's numbers are real. How he played and why he played that way are real. This is part one. More to come. Hope you enjoy it and would love to hear back from you on this and other episodes. Thanks in advance. Here's Pete Rose. And right into the stretch. Looking back and throws up the middle. Rose and he ties Sam Musial. Number 3,630. Strike one pitch to Rose. Bounce into the hole. There it is. 104 games, and you're playing a team that won 79 in a best of three. If I've won 104 and I find myself playing some slappy team that's got 79 wins, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta wet the bed with worry every night before that series actually gets started. Well, it's the same thing as a wild card team going to the Super Bowl because they had to win a couple games on the road to mm-hmm. get there. I mean, but you're you're absolutely correct in a three game series. I mean, even though you got good pitching, mm-hmm. your star pitcher could have a bad game yep. in game one. Then you got to win two in a row. I mean, that's when I used to play in the playoffs all the time, okay? Uh, we used to have a five game playoff, it was three out of five. And that's a lot of pressure compared to a four out of seven, mm-hmm. which we played in the World Series. Because if you lose one game one in that playoff, okay, you got to win three out of four. And when you're playing a team that's equivalent to you as far as the standings are concerned Mm -hmm. in the playoffs you know you got good pitching it's hard to sweep a team three out of four or win three out of four and when you know you have to do that you got pressure on you there's no question about they say you know i always thought that the only pressure in baseball it's not every day playing it's not hitting streaks it's not this it's not that it's the playoffs that's what that's where the pressure is the playoffs because especially in a three out of game, three out of five playoffs, you got to win. You got to win. You got to win early. You know, a World Series, you want to win it. I've, I've been to six of them. You want to win the World Series. I won three of them, but you know, there's really no loser in the World Series. I mean, you want to win. Sure, you do. 
But there's only two teams in all the world you get to play in the World Series. And that's that, that's something I always really liked. I wanted to win every game I played. But if you lose the World Series, you don't go home and cry for a week. So I was going to save this for later, but it's really interesting because to me, you played in arguably the greatest game ever, Game 6 in 1975. And I, yeah. you know, for people who don't know, you had one constant theme running through your mind that entire game and then even post-game, and I think if the story's correct, you might have said to Sparky how incredible that game was, and he probably looked at you like you were crazy because you guys lost. But explain to everybody <laughs> well, was, what you were telling yeah, everybody. Yeah, let, me tell you, yeah. let me tell you exactly what happened, okay? Sparky comes in, and, and he's mad because we blew the game. It was 3-0, three 3-3, to 6-3, to 6-6, to 7-6. Uh, Carlton hit the home run in the 12th inning, okay? Uh, Sparky was there. He said, big red machine, my ass. Okay? <laughs> and I said, Spark, did you see that celebration they just had right now? Did they forget they got to come back and play a game seven? Their, their World Series was the game before when they won 7-6. to six. And that took all the steam out of them. Although I must tell you, they had a three to nothing lead in the yeah. next game, game seven. Yeah. And let me let me tell you something that, that escaped everybody who watched that World Series. And I'm not trying to take any credit for anything, okay? But we got a man on. We we got a man on, and uh, somebody hit a double play ball. It was either Bench or Perez, one of the two. And I hit Denny Doyle, and I knocked him on his ass. He threw the ball in the in the Boston uh, dugout. Okay, we're down three nothing. Next batter up that had been the double play in the inning. The next batter up was Tony Perez. Bill Lee threw the Ephus pitch that Perez hit over the Jimmy Fund to make it three to two. Where if I don't break that double play up, it's three nothing in the fifth inning. But once we got the home run, we got all the confidence and momentum in the world and went on to win that game seven. That's that's how important, okay, for young listeners listening to you and I talk right now, every pitch, every play can be in a baseball game. And by just the a, just, a, just yeah. a matter of breaking up a double play or getting a walk at a certain time. You know, just little things like that turn into victories. And And what I'll tell everybody else is, you were telling everybody what? Like, you, you couldn't believe that you had the, the pleasure, you had the honor to play uh, in that game. That's. That- hey, I, went, I went up to bat. I went up to bat the inning before and looked at Carlton Fisk because it was 6 6. And I said, Carlton, in this fun, we're playing in one of the best games in the history of baseball. And I must have relaxed him because he hit the home run <laughs> the next inning to win the game. <laughs> And, but, that, but that's the way you look at it. Because let me tell you something. Uh, one thing I don't like in sports, and you don't either, okay? You don't want to see a, a, a Super Bowl be 48 to nothing. Right. You don't want a World Series like we did in 76 sweep the Yankees. Right. Because that's a showplace for your sport. You're right. You're okay? right. The, hey, the only, the only reason you want the Super Bowl to be 48 to nothing because you got the under and it's 49. That's exactly right. That's exact. And I, by the way, as you were saying, I was like, yeah, there is one scenario where I'll take 48 nothing. Um, but, but here's the other thing. Here's why I think Pete Rose, the manager, probably was at least in play when you were playing. You yeah. knowing that they had burned out that night as they're jumping up and down, 
you're thinking about the psyche of a player, which is basically what a yeah. manager is. I mean, you have to observe what the hell is going on in your own clubhouse, your dugout, what you see on the field. And if you're not thinking along those lines, something is going to go by you. And I don't think you're going – look, you needed to go to bed that night feeling good enough that, hey, man, we're winning game seven. We're winning it because we're just as good, but I'm watching well, what they're we, doing we, in that dugout. Yeah. We were a confident team because we were a bunch of all-stars and a bunch of Hall of Famers. Hell, I, I, I hit a Hall of Famers, three Hall of Famers out of the first four players that hit, and I was the other guy. Plus, we had Griffey was a Hall of Famer. Geronimo was a Hall of Famer. Foster hit over 50 home runs in 77. He was a uh, 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 Griffey and, and Concepcion and Foster were perennial all-stars. So we had an all-star lineup, and, and we don't give up because we're even. Hell, we would play anybody a one-game deal for the championship. That's how confident we were cocky, but we were confident. We were confident that we could win. And, you know, when you have a celebration like that, it takes all the adrenaline out of you. And I think that's what happened. Although, like I said, they did come out to game seven and have a three to nothing lead. But, you know, we, we were still confident, even though we were down three to nothing. And that's what good teams do. And in one of, teams back from that. Right. In one of the greatest games ever, you also were a first-hand witness to one of the worst swings ever in a baseball game. That Bernie Carbo Bernie, moment. Bernie Carbo's. Oh. His swing before he, he hit the home run. <laughs> it was. It was the worst swing you'd ever seen in your work. I bet you didn't know this, but you probably did because you, you got pretty much on the ball here. Did you know Bernie Carbo was our first draft choice ahead of Johnny Bench? No. He got drafted the same year. Johnny was mm-hmm. second. Bernie Carbo was one. <laughs> So, so baseball, the the bedfellows. Bernie Carbo. Wait, wait, let me tell you, Bernie Carbo is one of two guys I ever played against, and one guy I played with him and Rico Cardi. Remember Rico Cardi? I sure do. Okay, don't ask me why, but during the games, they both kept their billfold in their back pocket of the baseball uniform. <laughs> So they didn't trust. They must not have trusted somebody. Hey, I, I don't know if Rico thought he was going to get caught yeah. eating, going from second to third. <laughs> I, I got only two guys. I, I, only two guys in the history of the game to have their billfold in their back pocket during the game. So I got to ask you about, and I'm assuming your father. Like I, I want to go back. Just I, I want to ask you about guys you played with and against and everything else in your career. But I'm assuming your father. I don't know if it was tough love. I don't know what the term might have been back then. But there had to be an instilling in you pretty early, and you gravitated towards it. You ran with it once it was maybe given to you, that this is how you go about your business. If you don't attack this, you've just wasted everybody's time. Well, here's the advantage I hit, okay? Now, you got to remember, I grew up in the 40s and the 50s, okay? Mm-hmm. And your fans don't know this, but my father was probably the best football player ever come out of Cincinnati. Okay, great football player. I was the water boy. I was the ball boy on the baseball team. I was I, I was the bat boy on the baseball team. The ball boy on the basketball team. So my father was a great athlete, and he would, you know, I would always go to his games. I was always working for the team. So and I saw the way he played, and that's the way he instilled the, the way I should play. Mm-hmm. You know, my father never embarrassed me in front of my teammates. He always corrected me when I played, no matter what sport I was playing. If I made a mistake, he corrected me on the way home. That's why I was such a fundamentally sound player. It's just because of my dad. 
Okay, I'll give you I'll give you a story. We got time, right? We got yeah. a lot of time. Hell yeah. Okay. I'm playing on, it's 1970. My dad died at Pearl Harbor Day in 1970. I'm a batting champion in 68 and 69, so the reason I said that is because I become kind of a star in the league. Okay, it's 1970. We're playing a home game. I come out after the game. My dad never stayed after the game, although he went to every game. He was a banker. He had to get up in the morning and go to work. He's standing by my car, so right away I think my mom's sick because he never stayed after the game. I look at that. Dad, dad, is mom all right? He said, oh, no. He says, I got a question to ask you. He said, that third time up tonight, and you had a man on third, and you grounded out to second. He said, did you run hard to first? And I thought about it, and I didn't because I was pissed because I missed a pitch I should have hit. Okay? And I said, uh, well, uh, no, I didn't. He said, don't embarrass me in this town like that. I taught you when you hit the ball, you run as hard as you can until the umpire says out or safe. I said, okay, Dad, don't worry about it. I'll see you tomorrow. He said, have a good night. And when you're getting scrutinized that closely at the big league level, now you have an idea why I played the way I played. Yeah, And two batting titles in your back pocket, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I said that because I, was, I wasn't a, a, a rookie player or right. something. You know, I was I was a leader of the team. I was, you know, I was a leader of the Reds at that time. And and he just that's the way he looked at every game. He thought every game was important. And if you lose tonight, don't worry about it. Win tomorrow night. So okay? cl- clear this up for me, don't though. Don't worry about don't worry about something that happened yesterday, last week, last month, or last year. Worry about what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, because you're in control of it. That's the way you got to look at it because baseball is a game. It's the only game in the world where you fail seven out of ten times to go to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. I made nine thousand. <laughs> I made nine thousand eight hundred outs. <laughs> Think about that. More than anybody, but I got more hits than anybody. Yeah, that's I a mean, lot of so that's a lot of right hand turns. I mean, you think about that's it, 9,000 plus outs, it's, it's a lot of, right? So, but I want to hear this out of your mouth now, because I think one of the other things that's been said is, uh, no doubt about it, in terms of the hustle, the work, uh, that base is mine, it's not yours, I'm going to come in hard, I expect you to do the same when I'm playing in the middle of it, whatever it is, I get all that. How much natural ability did you have? Because I, I think you might get, it, it's a great thing to be known as a guy who worked every ounce of his ability. But you must yeah. have been a player. I, I mean, this this notion that you were some one, slappy. One, one thing I did have, okay, that you need in baseball, uh, and need, you need in sports. I had great hand-eye coordination. Okay, so I would I would say that uh, I had a, a little better in average speed, but I knew how to run. Mm-hmm. I had a little better in average ability in the outfield, but I knew how to play it, uh, uh, play the game. Okay. I didn't. I had an average arm, but I led the league in assists a couple of times. Okay, so it's how you play. You know, in, in in my case, every time I hit a single, I was thinking about a double. If I'm on first base and a guy hits a single, I'm thinking about going to third. I'm not thinking about stopping at second. Okay, so that's the way I applied the game. I was always thinking ahead of guys that were playing the game. Okay, because my job was get on first, and the faster I get on first, the faster I can get around and touch home plate. And whoever touches home plate the most that particular night wins the damn game. Of all the records of all the records I got, and I don't know, I got 26, 28 major league records. 
The best record I got is I played in 1900, 1972 winning games. That's 250 more than the guy that's second in the history of the game. And that's really a credit to the great teammates I had and the great teams I was on. You know, I don't ever remember going to spring training. I went to 24 of them as a player. I don't ever remember going where I didn't think I had a chance of going to the playoffs or, or the World Series. Now, you you know what I know. You can look at the teams playing today, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, you think San Francisco thinks they can go to the World Series. You think Seattle thinks they can. You think Arizona thinks they can. You think Boston thinks they can. You think Detroit thinks they can. You think Pittsburgh thinks they can. I mean, you think Washington this year thinks they can. It's, there's so many teams, Toronto, there's so many teams that they have no chance of getting to the next level. What happens then? Everybody starts playing for themselves, worried about what kind of numbers they can put up so they can get money next year. That's what the game's turned into. There's probably, there, oh, I know, not probably, there's 30 teams in baseball. Okay? How many teams do you think realistically think they could win the World Series when this year started? Right. And by the way, the sport has lended itself to the myth that everybody's 0-0. And by, this could be our year. And, but but it's interesting. So you know A.J. Ellis, longtime catcher in baseball, right? Yeah. He retired a few years ago. A.J. Ellis. He's yeah. the guy that put it yeah. best to me. Uh, I was sitting with him, and I've told this story before. I was sitting with him in a clubhouse, visiting clubhouse, doing some work before right. I had to do the pregame show. And he had seen me around for years, and we had built up a little bit of a relationship. And we were talking about the three outcomes, home run, strikeout, walk. And he said, Chris, I'm, I'm just going to tell you this. This is how the game is different than even when I started as a minor leaguer. So it had been right. a number of years, but it wasn't two generations. He said it used to be that it was two swings for me, one for the team. He said, Chris, the game now is three swings for me. And he just said, I'm a catcher. I see it. He said, the game is played as a three swings for me. You don't even get the, the, the one swing for the team. And, and this is a guy who had the vantage point of being behind the plate to know what guys were yeah. doing and not doing. So yeah. I just thought that was a fascinating way to put the idea. Choking up, nope, not going to happen. Uh, slapping a ball the other way, fouling off a foul ball, you know, a pitch you didn't like to get the next one. No, most well, guys were actually trying to, you know, jack it out of a park. That's a good philosophy on his part. But, but let me ask you a question. Who has created this monster we're watching? The owners have. Why? Because the owners have convinced the players – that if you hit 25 to 35 home runs, I don't give a darn if you strike out 200 times, you're going to make 15 to 18 million. Am I right? Yeah. And and think and about the strikeout. They don't give a darn. When's the last time you saw a guy lead off the inning with a double and then next guy up shoot a ground ball right. to second? You don't see it anymore because he'd rather knock in two runs. Well, Hank. There's not, a, there's not enough teams today to worry or think about winning. They're all playing for themselves. Well, there's an, so Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron said that if he would have struck out a hundred times in a season, he wouldn't have come out all winter. That's that's his quote to me. I would not have come out oh, one day got, all winter. Got sent back to the minors. <laughs> when he got sent back to the minors, strike out a hundred times. I mean, back when I played, Ray Charles wouldn't have struck out a hundred times. So here's the other part of you as a young player. How long before you develop your pregame ritual, including what you needed to do in BP? Now, look, I'm going to say this about you. You said that you didn't have a great arm, but you led the league in assists. 
That means that you were concerned with your footwork and how you actually released. As third baseman, if you don't have the biggest arm in the world, you got to work on getting the ball out of your glove cleanly and quickly. So I know all the things you had to do playing all those other positions. You were a natural player, but you took your ability to another level and the way you do it in the outfield. Make sure you're positioned right. I knew I had to change positions in order to play. I always change positions to give someone else a chance to play. And when I played the outfield, the reason I had so many assists because I was super aggressive. Mm-hmm. I didn't lay back on anything. Or if I played third base, I, I played it really aggressively. That's the way you have to play the game. Whether you have shortcomings or whether you're the best player in the world. Mike Trout's one. He's probably the best player in baseball. But he plays aggressively still. That's what makes him so di- so difficult to stop. But knowing who the you are as a player is important. Trout. The only thing I don't like about Mike Trout, and I've seen Aaron, I've seen Mays, I've seen you know Clemente, I've seen a lot of great players, and those great players they seem to get their team over the hump, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, Trout can't get that team over the hump. Hell, they're they're ten or eleven games under five hundred as you and I talk right now, and they they traded for Randone. He's one of the best players in baseball. Pujols can still knock in runs. That guy's a hitting machine, and you got Trout. I mean, usually a team with stars like that are, are going to win more games than they're going to lose. Well, it also, I guess it's down to pitching staff. Yeah, it goes back to what you say, though, the ability to know how to win. But you also have to know your limitations, and you also have to know your strengths as a player. I, I think, look, oh. I, I say it all the time. Players are the first ones to know when they're not going well. Like, it's not a fan in a call-in show telling a player, hey, what a, that guy can't. Players know before anybody else does. And, and knowing how to get out of that, knowing how to be a pro and not have the three-game rough stretch turn into five games if you don't if you're not honest with yourself as a player i think you're putting up a wall that's really really hard to get over well i tell people this all the time okay everybody around you and me right now everybody has expertise we all could do something other people can't do if you're a baseball player and you've got expertise in hitting hit try to hit consistently if you're a fielder field if you're a runner runner if you're a pitcher pitch if you're a short reliever relief if you're a long reliever long relief there's things you can do don't get out of your element okay you don't send a guy who weighs 290 pounds and a can't run in to pinch run you, you don't put a guy that can't his way out of the bag up to pinch hit you don't bring a guy in that gives up a lot of long balls to save a game everybody had to, that's why you have 25 players that's why you have a batting order some guys can't hit first, second, third, fourth, or fifth. Other guys need to hit eighth. They need to hit ninth. They need to be a pinch hitter. They can't start. They can't play every day. They can't handle it. And when you're a manager, you got to know, because when I was a manager of the, of the Reds, and all you try to do, all you try to do is put players in situations where they'll thrive on. If you put players in situations where they'll fail, They'll fail. Believe me, they'll fail. If you keep them out of those situations and you got players for every situation, okay, and every once in a while you use a lot of players, you may run out of situational players, but you try to keep players where they belong, where they belong. And if you do that, you're going to win more games than the opposition. Does that make any sense? Yeah, and when you work players right, when you psychologically and physically work them right, here's what I know they're going to do. They'll run through a wall for you because they know that you have their best interest at heart. Right. 
because you pitch it for a player, don't, it doesn't mean you don't like him. It doesn't mean he can't do this or can't do that. It just seems that you think this guy as a pinch hitter has a better, uh, better situation mm-hmm. to win the game. And most managers, if not all managers, their number one goal every night is to win the damn game. That's the only reason you play a game is to win it. You don't play it for exercise, okay? And how about these managers that have no chance of getting to the next level? You know how hard their job is? How hard it is to go to the clubhouse today? You know, it, it, let's say a regular season, and it's September 1st, you got a whole month to go, and you're, and you're 32 games out of first place. You know how hard it is to go to the clubhouse? I don't give a damn how much money you're making, okay? Because it's hard for your fans to go to the game. It's hard for the players to play the game. Hell, most players are on bad teams in September. They'd rather play on the road. They'd rather, they'd rather play on the road against good teams because the good teams got fan support. Energy. Yeah, and there's yeah, energy. The don't have the bad teams. Are, well, now that the school started, now they're, they're drawing 12,000, 13,000 right. a game instead of 25 or 28,000. So, okay? So, so that's let, the situation I don't want to be in. Yeah, let me go back to, though, your pregame ritual and what you needed to do in BP. How long, how many years did it take you to figure out how it was going to work? Forget about a ritual. I, I don't believe in rituals. You know, when I got to the big leagues, I took batting practice the same way as I did in the minor leagues. I'm in a group. I get in when it's my group's time, probably four guys. Okay. I hit the ball wherever it's pitched. I try to hit it as hard as I can, not as far. Oh, the only time you try to hit home runs when the last the last minute or two minutes of batting practice where you're taking one swing and trying to play a long ball. But you got to work on hitting when you're in batting practice. You know, you can't work on hitting in the clubhouse. You can't work uh, before the game once batting practice is over. Batting practice is to get loose. Batting practice is for confidence. And every player, just like when I broke the record, 41-92, I knew I was going to get hit the first time up. I had such a good batting practice that night. Everything I swung at was right right on the nose. Right on the nose. And it took me two or three pitches to break the record. I just, I, because batting practice is for confidence, okay? And if you don't hit in batting practice, how the hell are you going to hit in the game? Yeah, because it's straight in 72 miles an hour. Yes, yes. <laughs> and if it's not, you get a new batting practice pitcher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you starting to make guys look bad, get them the hell out of there because the lack, lack of confidence will show quickly. Uh, so well, there's people, so- We were lucky. The big red machine was lucky. I'll tell you why. Because here again, you know, I was a switch batter, okay? And I never I never hit off a right-hand pitcher in batting practice. So if a right-hand pitcher was pitching that night, I took batting practice left-handed. And if a left-hand pitcher was uh, pitching that night against us, I hit off a left-hand batting practice pitcher. And we were lucky because our radio announcer was a former 20-year player in the big leagues, Joe Nuxall. Mm-hmm. So we had a left-handed batting practice pitcher there was a pitcher and threw strikes and knew how to get us ready. I didn't. If, if I had a, a, a right-hander pitching that night, I didn't. I didn't bat right-handed in batting practice. You know, I, I, two times in my career, I hit left-handed off of a left-hand pitcher, Jim Brewer and Randy Jones. I never in my life hit right-handed off a right-hand pitcher. Matter of fact, I can't even go back to Little League remember remembering hitting right-handed off a right-hand pitcher because I started to switch bat when I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. So why those two dad, guys? My what? dad told the coach, my dad told the coach, 
I want this boy to be a left-hand hitter against right-hand pitching. And my promise to you is he'll never miss a practice, he'll never be late to a practice, and he'll never miss a game. You know how literally baseball, you come down to championship season, championship week, and the rich kids, mom and dad, went on vacation. So he missed the game. My dad didn't believe in that. His obligation was to have me be on the field for that coach no matter what the situation was. And no matter what the situation was, I was batting left-handed off of a right-hander and right-handed off of a left-hander. When you're 22 and they, t- they take you up after spring training, is it mm-hmm. easy or did you take a veteran's job, which has been a long-time thing in baseball, where some of the veterans, there might be that moment of, uh, one of our buddies is now gone. This kid better be able to play. Oh, I went through that. I went through yeah. that. I'll tell you why. Because in 1961, the Reds went to the World Series against the Yankees, and they had a second baseman named Don Blasio. Okay. And he he hit 280 or something like that. Okay, now it's 62, and he didn't do as well. Now it's 63, and I'm coming off of two straight 330 years in Macon and in uh, Tampa, Florida, and Fred Hutchinson liked me. He liked I'll tell you, the cat out of the bag came in St. Petersburg in the Winter League, Instructional League. He, you know, the manager, Fred Hutchinson, came to a couple Instructional League games. And I got like two or three hits in each game. And he told a reporter afterwards, he said, if I had any balls at all, I'd put that kid at second base next year. So I went to spring training as a non-rostered player. Okay? And I had a great spring training. And he thought I could do more things than Don Blasen game. However, okay, and I'm not uh, I'm not talking bad about these guys. Johnny Edwards, Eddie Casco, okay, Gordy Coleman, guys like that all were real close to Don Blasen game. Now all of a sudden, this brash young kid from Cincinnati is starting at second base, and they, they kind of resented me. But the only two guys that really liked me were Veda Pinson and Frank Robinson because they saw something that the white guys couldn't see or didn't want to see. Okay. Then I, then I got off to a decent start. Well, I didn't, I went over 12, my first 12 at bats. Then I won rookie of the year. Uh, and then the second year I had a so-so year. Then that's why I went to Venezuela after the 64 season to play winter ball. And I hit 340 and led the league and run scored. So when I come back for the 65 season, what, I hit 300 the next 12 or 14 years, something like that, because I went to Venezuela to learn how to hit. But I was always trying to impress my teammates, if you believe that. But that's the way I didn't give a damn. I didn't give a damn. I played hard. I played harder and harder and harder. I still ran the first on the base on balls. I still still had head head first in the third, head first in the second. I still knocked catchers over if they were blocking the plate. Played within the rules, but I played hard. And I don't know if I embarrassed some players the way I played, okay, but I probably did. Because how did I play? I'll tell you how I played. I played the right way. I played the way everybody should play. That's my philosophy. Pete Rose played the game the way every player plays the game should play the game. All out, two and a half hours a day, seven days a week. That's the way you should play the game. That's what you owe to the fans. That's what you owe to your teammates. That's what you owe to your team. That's what you owe to your fans. And if you don't, you're cheating the game. And if you cheat the game, you're cheating yourself. 
so how do you reconcile the idea that the what you the way you played on the field? Do you think some guys, when you got in trouble with the commissioner with the gambling stuff, yeah. do you think some yeah. guys reveled in that? Do you think some guys were like played the card of good, didn't like them? No, probably, probably, but uh, not nobody I played with, and not many guys I played against. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. I made a mistake, big deal. Okay, I paid the consequences. I didn't hurt you when I bet on my team to win. Did I hurt you? I don't think I did. Did I hurt the guy sitting next to you? I don't think I did. Okay? I had that much confidence in my players, my young players. I wanted to bet on them every night because I thought they'd win every night. You know, I'm, I was absolutely wrong. I was absolutely wrong, and I apologize. But if you think about it, every manager should bet on his team every night because he's going to do everything in the damn world to win the game. And maybe I shouldn't say that. But, uh, you know, I was wrong and I broke the rules and I paid the consequences. So let's go to the next step. So players who played with me, uh, I never had a player say a bad thing about me. It would be hard to unless I beat you out because all I did is play the game hard. All I did is play the game to win. And I just told you how many wins I played on, how many World Series I went to, how many All-Star games I went to, 17. I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't any kind of ass, you know. I I took care of young players. You can ask any young player that came up through the Reds after I did. I took care of them because I didn't want them to go through what I went through. Okay, young players are intimidated when they first get to the big leagues. Even today, it's tough being a rookie in baseball. It's tough being a rookie in football, in basketball, and your veteran players got to. They got. I remember the first All Star game I made. Okay, in Minnesota in 1965. I get to the clubhouse the day before for the workout. I'm lockering between Mays and Aaron. I'm saying, what the hell am I doing here? You hear what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Henry, Aaron, and Willie Mays. And that's why I love those guys. Because those guys went out of their way to treat me like I was one of the guys. They didn't treat me like I was a young rookie, brash young rookie. They treated me like I belonged on that team, and they made me feel as, as comfortable as we could. And all they talked about is winning the game. And I played 17 All-Star games, and they were teammates in a lot of those games. And how many we went out of 17? 16. That's how many All-Star games the National League won. 16 out of 17. The only one we lost was 1971 in Detroit when Reggie hit the ball off of Doc Ellis. And, and it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty good record. Well, listen, the, the stories are historical. I've spoken to a couple of guys, including Hank, about it, how what that game meant, whether it was, you know, somebody would get up and give the speech, and we don't lose, we're the National League. And you know right across the hall, the other guys are going, I, I, I don't know, we're pretty good, but I'm not, I don't well, know if we're better I, than I, them. This is interesting. We used to have for all those games, okay, most all but a couple, uh, we had a, a National League president named Warren Giles, who was Bill Giles' dad, part owner of the Phillies. And his office was located in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he would go to every All-Star game, as every president does and commissioner does. And we don't have presidents leagues now. We used to, but we don't. And he would give a pregame speech. And you could see the veins in his neck <laughs> popping out. 
I want to win this game because this is my opportunity to show the world that National League is superior than the American League. Okay? And I remember when he resigned and we had an all-star game and Chubb Feeney was the league president. He didn't even come in the clubhouse to talk to us. Mm. Well, we have all been through so many speeches with Mr. Giles. We all felt the same way. We all, how, how did we feel? It's an honor to be on the National League All-Star team. It's an honor. It's a privilege. We have an opportunity. Okay? We didn't always win the World Series because American League's top teams were pretty good. But I got, I got one scenario why we were better in, in the 60s and 70s. And see if this makes any sense to you. Because we had more African-American players. Mm-hmm. Why did we have more? Because Cincinnati, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Houston, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, all had AstroTurf. And we needed speed for the AstroTurf. And that's why we had so many African-American players, because they could all run. And that's why we were a better league. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Uh, look, the other part is, and and by the way, the integration came quicker in the National League for the most part by more sure. cities and more teams. Sure. sure. And and, and, we and a, yeah, we're talking about an all-star team, okay? Look, look, you think about the American League, the National League. We got Mays, Aaron, and Clemente. Okay, name me three guys uh, comparable to that in the American League. Well, one you'd probably say is Al Kaline. Okay, I don't know who the other two would. Well, be. Mickey Healthy. Well, Mickey uh, went in the seventies. You know, he went. Mickey was in the sixties. Yeah. Well, Mickey Mantle was. Uh, Mickey Mantle was Mickey Mantle. <laughs> but we had more star players. Yeah. We had more star players than the American League. I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's the same today. I doubt it. But there's there's star players everywhere. I mean, there's star players because of a couple reasons. Because pitching sucks today. I mean, I, I don't give a damn what anybody says. I face better pitching than these guys today. And there's some good, really good pitchers out there. There's some really good pitchers out there. But the overall pitching, okay, middle relief pitchers. You know what middle relief pitchers are? I'm not talking about closers. Old, I'm old, about old starters. There are guys that aren't good enough to start. Right. There are guys that aren't good enough to close. Yep. But they got to be on the staff. Listen, I live in Vegas. And I'm getting, I, I just watched one game. I'm getting ready to watch another game. I'll probably watch Pittsburgh and Chicago tonight. But most of the runs in baseball were scored in the 6th, 7th, and 8th inning. Because guys got starters and guys got closers. Okay? How many times do you see a starter in the 5th inning tonight or, or last night or the night before where he's got 60 or 70 pitches thrown? Right. Fifth, sixth inning, they're already up to ninety-five or a hundred. So you're not, you know, they're not going to go seven innings. Then you got to go to your mid or relief pitchers. I watch it. I charted it. I'm not, I'm not bullshitting you. This is the truth. Runs are scored in the sixth, seventh, and eighth inning. Well, I do know this. There are a lot of nights when I'm assuming on the dugout when a good starter goes after six, everybody high fives. Everybody says, "Now we win." Yeah. Yeah, because the game changes at that point. Uh, it does that point. Yeah. I, I, I got to ask you about Stan Musial. You got guys like Berlander and, and you know, and Scherzer. And, yeah. Yeah. Those guys are good pitchers. Yeah. Max Scherzer is really good pitcher. I mean, so is Strasburg. 
So is DeGrom. I mean, there's, there's guys I wouldn't want to face today, but there's a lot of guys I would love to face. I don't care if they're throwing 98. Who gives a damn about how hard they throw? The best pitch in baseball, as far as I'm concerned, is a changeup. Give me a guy with an 84-mile-an-hour changeup and a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, and he'll be a star pitcher. Because what's the object of the pitcher? <laughs> Tries to keep a hitter off stride, yep. and that's what a changeup does. It gets you out on your front foot. Well, look, but there, not, there a are a lot big... of guys throw changeups today, but they don't have good changeups. Right, and we were just talking about it earlier today. We got a kid in Ian Anderson. He's a 22-year-old. It looks like he's got a good changeup at 22. That if if he holds on to that, that's a weapon for a lot of years to come. Here's the other thing: no. if you're a one-trick pony and your trick is throwing 97 miles an hour, like you said, 97 doesn't bother me, especially if I know 97's coming. There, there's not a big league hitter that can hit this fast. Okay, Tom Seaver. You know, Tom Seaver was a great pitcher. We just lost him recently. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody that pitches, or most everybody, when they throw chest high or above the, the belt, they throw gas. Okay? They throw hard. Tom Seaver threw hard down. His 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 fastball knee high had giddy up on it. And that's why he was such a successful pitcher. Because you try to keep the ball down. And Tom kept the ball down with good velocity on it. Okay? That's, that's just a secret about Tom Seaver. So, you know, other guys throw high, you swing at, you're going to swing and miss. Just the way it is. Nolan Ryan, he threw hard. He had a good curveball. I think Nolan Ryan would have had 500 more strikeouts if he had developed that circle change he had the last two or three years of his career because the changeup would have got left-hand hitters right. out. I hit 296 off of Nolan Ryan. Okay, he struck me out 13 times, walked me 18 times. But it was okay to face him. You know what you're going to get, a good fastball and a big curveball. If there's no other pitch, hey, no problem. Just get it get it in the strike zone and whale away. Koufax, good fastball, good curveball. Marichelle, he had four or five good pitches. He was one of the best pitchers I ever faced. And I hit 340 off one Marichelle. <laughs> But I would put him down as one of the top five pitchers in the history of baseball because Marichal was one of these guys. Look his record up. He'd be 21 and 3, 22 and 4. Other guys are 20 and 15. You know, 20 and 15, you won five, you won five games for your, for your team. If you've got five starters and they all win five more than they lose, you got 25 wins. Mary and Mary Shell could pitch. I mean, that guy could. Bob Gibson could pitch. Okay, Fergie Jenkins could pitch. You know, Drysdale could pitch. Hey, listen to this. Listen to this road trip. We're playing a Sunday game in Cincinnati. The game's over. We get on the airplane. We're going to L.A. We face Colfax, Drysdale, and Sutton. Okay, three Hall of Famers. Sutton was a youngster then. Then we go up to San Francisco and we face Mary Shell and Gaylord Perry and somebody else. Then we got an off day Thursday. We go to St. Louis to face Gibson, Carlton, and someone else. So we had nine games, and seven games were Hall of Fame pitchers. Now, was there any road trips like that today? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. No. That is a rough-ass road trip. Well, I'll give you the other one, Pete. 
you can't be an ace in my world. It gets thrown around a little bit, but you got to do five years plus of work and stay healthy and make your 30, back in those days, 34 starts. That, that's the other thing, the bow out, the, um, the not driving to the ballpark thinking that you're going to go nine today. I, I think some guys just, it's the five and dive, six and gone. And, and you tell me that if you were in a car with Bob Gibson driving to the ballpark on the day that he was pitching, you tell me what you what you feel without him even saying anything. This is my game today. I go nine. That that's scary. the only thing he drove he to the ballpark scary. with. Yeah, he was scary. I mean, that guy was. Uh, but all the guys I mentioned, you know, the Kofaxes, the Drysdale, the Suttons, you know, it seems like they all had one thing in common. They were all aggressive. You know, you don't go to the Hall of Fame for not aggressive. Hmm. You just have a you have a certain feeling towards you that other people don't have. You know, and, and they and they carried that to the mound. Right, and it looked they looked the part. Are, yeah, a lot of guys are aggressive, but when they get out there in the middle of the mound, they're not so aggressive. All right, That's I, like I was aggressive every time I batted. I batted, I batted officially, officially, fourteen thousand and fifty three times. I had fifteen hundred walks, and I got hit a hundred times. So no, that's fifteen thousand. And 600 times I batted. Are you there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a ridiculous number. Look, you've got to be good enough to actually have your name written in the lineup for that many years to, to just even accumulate numbers, anything close. I, I do want to go through a couple of things. Though. The, the One of the most interesting stories that I don't think anybody knows is Stan Musial's last game. Yeah. You, I remember. You're, you're a rookie. And you actually have a little sort of moment with Stan Musial in that game. Can you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a rookie, and it's pretty obvious uh, that I was going to be rookie of the year. Okay. And I'm playing second, second base. Stan's last at bat. Everybody knows, I don't know, it was the seventh, eighth, ninth, and I don't know what it was. And Stan got a base hit to my left, a ground ball single. And the right fielder threw the ball into me. And I knew it was Stan's last hit. And I took the ball over to first base, and I handed it to him. And I said, congratulations, Mr. Musial. Okay, now, in 1981, I break his record, 36-31. Now he's a big record in Philadelphia against the Cardinals. Who comes out of the stands in Philadelphia? Stan Musial to congratulate me on breaking his record. Yeah. Stan Musial was, <laughs> he's a top fiver. You know, he's an amazing Aaron group. I mean, Stan, you look at Stan Musial's record. You ever look at his stats? This guy has got some stats. I mean, and he was such a, such a wonderful guy and such a, such a helpful guy to young players. You know, two guys used to always talk to the young players. It was Clemente and Musial. Okay, they, they, they always had time for young players. And Mays was like that, too. Henry was kind of shy in a way. I got along good with Henry. I got along great with Henry. But, you know, if Henry had played in New York where Willie played, Henry would have been the say, hey, kid. You know, I mean, that's just Willie took advantage of it, being in New York. Willie was a great player, a great all-around player. People forget how good of a defensive player Henry Aaron was or how good of a base runner Henry was. You know, these guys are, <laughs> I mean, these guys are like playing with Ruth and Gary and Cobb. When you you're, have so many, 
you know, guys come down the pike. And I got to play against all these guys, and I got to play with them. That's my point. You, you, bridged, you bridged an incredible era of baseball. I, I want to ask, yeah. though, as, as a young guy, I know you're aggressive, you want to win the game and everything else, but based upon what happened in the 75 World Series in Game 6, as you're looking around going, this is incredible, isn't this fun? I'm assuming that you had the utmost respect for guys like that, especially when you were a young player, and and there had to be moments when you're on a baseball field, like you said at the All-Star game, I'm between Aaron and Mays, this is ridiculous, to watch guys who were good, look, they're... To, to be in a major league, you're the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. But then there's that next level of guy, that next level, that one more 1% up. Were you aware that you were watching guys like that play the game that well? Oh, yeah, it was because when I was a kid, growing up in Cincinnati, going to Reds games, Willie was playing. Hank was playing. You know, I got out of high school in 1960. You know, Willie, uh, uh, when did he come up, 56? That's when he made that catch with uh, Bob uh, in center field. Yeah, fifty-four. that was 54 on Vic Wirtz. He came up in 54. 51, went to the service. He was in the military for two years. So his real career started in, in 54. Because here, here, here was my deal during the uh, summer in Cincinnati. I grew up in the same little town, you know, eight miles from downtown Cincinnati, as, as uh, Don Zimmer did. Our dads were literally teammates. Every time... The Dodgers would come into town. My dad would get the bank, Fifth Third Union Trust Company's bank tickets, and we go to the game. And you got to know that Crosby Field, the visitors' clubhouse, was a building behind the stadium. It wasn't connected to the stadium. And we would always go out and back and wait for Don to come out. You know, Dud was there as dad because they would they'd always go out to dinner. And Don, that's where Don he introduced me to Duke. He introduced me to Jackie. He introduced me to Roy. He introduced me to Charlie Neal, Sandy Amaros, Carl Ferrillo. I got to meet all the Dodger players because of Don Zimmer. It was a special – and I'm just a kid. I'm just a 12-, 13-year-old kid. And it was a pleasure of me to go, first of all, to the Reds-Dodgers game. Then I get to meet all the Dodger players. And in no time, that I, I didn't know Duke Snyder was that good. I didn't know Jackie Robinson – was the first black player ever to play. I was a kid. I didn't realize that. And they were all nice guys to me because they liked Don Zimmer. And who did Don? Don played back up to Pee Wee Reese. That was the Dodgers shortstop. And Don Zimmer was the backup. So that's how my that's how my youth started, just meeting those guys. And my favorite player all those years was a guy named Big Ted Kozuski, who who played the opposite of me. He was a big first baseman that was a home run hitter, although he did play tight end at University of Indiana for a football team. But they had Johnny Temple, Roy McMillan, and, 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 and Wally Post and Gus Bell. And then along came Frank Robinson in 56. I think he was rookie year in 56. So Frank was in the league seven, eight years before I got to meet him. Kluzewski was one but of the I first guys that everybody talked about filling out a uniform. And I know when they went sleeveless for a while, uh, you want to talk about a guy who just didn't look like everybody else? That would that they wouldn't believe was because of Clue's arms. <laughs> and he used to always look at me, and he'd point to his guns, you know, arms. He'd point to his guns, and he'd say, "You know what those are?" I said, "What are they, big guy?" 
He said, "Those are Polish joke stoppers." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna pull out your favorite uh, Polish joke out of your back pocket when Ted is around. Probably a very bad idea. Let, let me ask you this: When and, and I look, I, I know how much being in the Hall of Fame would mean to you, and I'm going to tell you why I know that. Because the respect that you had, you just mentioned, and you talked about going on a road trip, seven to nine guys were going to be Hall of Famers. Yeah. When you talk about yeah. Pee Wee Reese, when you talk about Duke Snyder, when you, I, 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 look, you know what you did was wrong. You know why you pay the yeah. price that you do. But would anybody have enjoyed being a Hall of Famer on that weekend and the other things that you would have gotten to do with those guys? Because, look, I know about the Sunday night dinner, and I know about stories and tall tales, and the fish always gets bigger many years later. But I would imagine you missed that as much as actually oh, sure. the plaque in the Hall of Fame. Listen, I, if I'm ever lucky enough to uh, have an opportunity to go to Cooperstown, I'll be the happiest guy in the world. I know what it means. Okay? The, the next three guys that batted after me all had plaques there. Okay? Then I had a couple guys that I played with in Philly named mm-hmm. Schmidt Carlton. They got plaques there. Then I went to Montreal, and I have three guys on that team that had plaques there. It would be Gary Carter, Tim Raines, and Andre Dawson. Okay, so I have I had eleven or twelve Hall of Fame teammates, and I, I know what it means. I I know what you know when I when I made the Reds Hall of Fame, that was a, a, really a top honor because I was born in Cincinnati. Then they gave me a statue outside the ballpark, that was a big honor. Okay, those are things they can't take away from me. But I'm not in Cooperstown because of my 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 mistakes, and I live with that. Okay, I live with that. But I must tell you, I, I, I don't think I'm the only player uh, that's ever made a mistake in the game of baseball. And baseball, I know what happened in 1919 with the Black Sox scandal. I know all about it, okay? And baseball, uh, until now, baseball always looked, they always looked at gambling different than they did alcohol or mm-hmm. drugs or things like that. I think you'll agree with that. Yes. And, and, and just like uh, last year, before the season started, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's thirty there's thirty managers in baseball, correct? Yes. Okay. Do you know every game last year before the game started, fifteen minutes before the game, you know what the manager had to do? He had to email his starting lineup to the commissioner's office. You know what they did with it? They emailed it to the MGM Grand Resorts. Now, what are we talking about here? I mean, in baseball, it seems like every year baseball is getting in bed with the gambling, uh, you know, the gambling world more and more every year. Well, Pete, the Mohegan Mohegan Sun sign is on some outfields down in spring training sites. There's casinos, Harris. They're they're behind home plate at Yankee Stadium. Yep. But that's okay. That's okay because what today is all about, okay, as far as the owners are concerned, is money. And they're paying money. They're paying money to be part of it. Just like we're opening up a new stadium on Monday. I live nine-tenths of a mile from the Raiders' new stadium Mm -hmm. on the same street. Okay? Inside the stadium, Monday night's the first game. Inside the stadium, they have windows to bet on the game. Yeah. Well, I'll give you another one, Pete. With the way the hockey has gone and the way it looks like the NFL is going to yeah. go, there'll be a baseball team in Vegas. That's okay. Yeah. I, I, it's going to take some time because they don't have to. They, they got to build a stadium with mm-hmm. a roof on it. 
that's why I'm surprised they didn't uh, construct a new stadium where you could do some switching around and right. have a baseball field. Like they used to have at the Coliseum. But I don't think they can do that because uh, you couldn't play uh, – uh, the baseball in July and August. Right. Vegas. Yeah, no doubt. It's going to be 38, 39,000 seats and it'll be enclosed. But, but again, I want to go back to it. I think the other thing, Pete, about one of the reasons that I know they came down hard on you, everybody knows about the sign. You're not allowed to do it and you did it. So you got to pay yeah. the price. But, but here's what I also believe. If we can keep the guy who's got more hits than anybody in this game out of the Hall of Fame, that is the unbelievable deterrent of all deterrents. Because if we can keep Pete out for this many years, you think you're going to get away and catch a break if you gamble on baseball? And I do think, by the way, you end up paying a price. Your greatness, your ability to play the game, it's it's the deterrent of all deterrents. Because if they can keep you out, that means the guy who's four years into his career and hanging on, uh, they have no problem telling him he has to go away. Guys know that now. Well, here's another thing you got in this conversation we're talking about. I mean, you have a Hall of Fame, and you send, I'm, I got the most hits, I'm not in it. Okay? Barry Bonds has the most home runs. He's not in it. Roger Clemens has the most Cy Youngs. He's not in it. Okay? How can you have a Hall of Fame without those guys in the Hall of Fame? Can I counter with this? Yeah. You are in the Hall of Fame because your story. You have memorabilia there, I know. Like, does, is that any comfort to you or no? Oh, yeah. I got, uh, what, uh, 27 artifacts in the Hall of right. Fame? Which is fine. It's great. People can see it. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's a plaque. It, it's a plaque, but it's a fraternity. It's a fraternity. I mean, uh, I don't know too many people would say to you, I don't belong in the Hall of Fame, because most people, I don't know how you feel, but most people believe the Hall of Fame is stats. I mean, how many altar boys do you have at the Hall of Fame? So so let me ask you this. Do you have to live with the idea? Had you come out sooner, had you fallen on uh, it sooner? I, I don't even worry about that. No, no, no. But... Because I, I have my reasons why I did what I did, okay? And, uh, you know, it, it was it was just something that happened. I mean, just, I, I, I can't. It, it, it was 1989. So that how many years ago was that? Going on 35, 36 years I've been suspended. Yeah. You kind of get used to it. Right. You kind of get used to it. But I get a lot of respect around the country. And you know what? You think I'm crazy when I say this? I believe, I believe in my mind, my heart, that I'm the biggest ambassador baseball has. Because what do I do when I'm working here in Vegas? Five hours a day, 15 days a month, I sign autographs. And I talk positive about the game of baseball. Don't badmouth the game of baseball. Okay? Everywhere everywhere I go, everybody knows I'm Pete Rose the hit king. And I didn't get hits playing ping pong. I got hits playing baseball. Okay? So, and, and I'm always talking to young players, young players, about how to play the game of baseball, how to prepare yourself, things like that. And you know as well as I, the last five, six years, it would be easy to knock the game of baseball, wouldn't it? All the things they're going through mm-hmm. with the steroids and everything else. Yeah. But I don't. I don't knock baseball. I don't want to knock baseball. I don't know about steroids. I never took any steroids. 
I don't know. I don't care who took steroids. Now, if someone got 42.57 and beat my record, and he was, uh, they said he took steroids, and I'd have some things to say about it. But so, I'm not worried about it. So let me ask this, though. So, so let's just say, because you brought up Barry and Roger, and again, neither guy has come out and said, oh, yeah, by the way, I did it, my bad, or whatever. Yeah. But, but do you consider Hank Aaron the true home run king then? I, I don't want to go there. Because, okay. <laughs> because, you know, Barry did what he did. Hank did what he did. Uh, I know one thing. If I got a guy in scoring position, I want Hank up there. <laughs> I want Hank with a bat in his hand. Or if I need a home run to win a game, I want Hank up there. And Barry, Barry was good too. Barry, Barry Bonds was really good. So was Willie. Willie had six hundred and sixty. Pujols just tied yeah. him the other day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like, you know, we can argue all night about Willie and Henry and Clemente and Bonds and and the rest of the great players that played the game. But I'll go on record to saying this, and I hope you believe me when I say this, or you agree with me. I guess I should say, the greatest player in the history of baseball. Who do you think it was? Well, I would think because of the social part of it, uh, Babe Ruth, because the game sort of thrived. Bingo. Once, yeah. Bingo. You hit it right on the head. Because Babe Ruth did something for baseball that I don't think Jim Brown could do. I don't think Michael Jordan could do. I don't think Wayne Gretzky could do. Babe Ruth saved the game by going to this town or that town for a three-game series because mm-hmm. they sold out. And enable those franchises to grow and get better and better and better. Babe Ruth, I mean, this guy, he's hit rocks. He had 714 home runs. And those balls were so dead that he didn't even bounce. I mean, if Babe Ruth was playing today, he did 75 home runs. I mean, he was just the man. And he still has pitching records, World Series pitching records. And coming and off, and, co- and coming off a nineteen. Think about this though, Pete. Coming off in nineteen nineteen too. Um, you know, with the whole Black Sox scandal. Uh, you want to talk about a sport being, you know, needing to be saved in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That was a Joe Jackson situation. Yeah, that was my daddy Reds and the Black Sox. Hey, they're playing tonight, the Reds and the Sox. Well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. It was. See, I, I, if, if there's one, I met seven presidents, okay? That's how many presidents I met. If there's one person that I didn't get to meet that I would have liked to meet in my lifetime, it would have been Babe Ruth. And many years ago, up in, in Cooperstown, I was signing autographs, and his daughter walked three blocks down the street to say hi to me and tell me that her dad would have really appreciated the way I played. And that was Claire Ruth, his daughter, who mm-hmm. just recently passed away. She was 77 when she came down to say hi to me. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something. I've been in front of a federal judge. I was more nervous talking to her than anybody I've ever talked to in my life. That's how nervous I was because it was Babe Ruth's daughter. She was unbelievable. She was unbelievable. She was so sharp. And I'm just saying to myself, it can't be. This is Babe Ruth's daughter. I'm yeah. talking to Babe Ruth's daughter. It's impossible. It's impossible. But it was her. So you. She gave me an autograph ball. She gave me an autograph ball. So you talked about, okay, that's interesting that Ruth would be the guy. 
there's this yeah. thing that you you have to be careful when you meet your heroes. Uh, they could easily disappoint you. So did you meet guys like, you know, uh, Ted finishes up before you're playing. Uh, DiMaggio was gone, obviously, in 51. So I know all the history and the dates. Did you have opportunities, whether it was old-timers games, whether it was winter stuff, did you meet guys like that and, and establish any kind of relationships with the guys a generation or two before you? Well, okay. Uh, in 1967, I get a call from the State Department. Guy says, you want to go to Vietnam? I'm just a young kid. I said, not necessarily. There's a war going on. He said, Joe D's going. I said, I get to meet Joe DiMaggio? <laughs> he said, you get to live with him for 23 days. I said, sign me up. I lived with Joe DiMaggio in Vietnam for 23 days. I landed on the Intrepid aircraft carrier with Joe DiMaggio in 1967, along with uh, um, uh, Jerry Jerry Coleman. You know who Jerry is? Oh, I do. By the way, uh, an American hero. Yeah, and, of course, uh, Tony Canigliero. The four of us went there. When we got to Saigon, Joe and I went south. They went north. We ended up meeting them on the Intrepid, which is docked in New York. And if you want to hoot, go land on an aircraft carrier and tell me how you feel. <laughs> and and there's a war going on, man. I'm in a camp and there's a war going on. And it never bothered Joe D, so it didn't bother me. I said, hell, if it's good enough for Joe DiMaggio, it's good enough for me. He was a prince, man. And when we came back and we'd go to golf tournaments, people always liked when I was around Joe because I relaxed Joe. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe just, you know, because I was pretty, I mean, I had the second longest city streak, and, you know, I had all the hits and all the records, and and, and Joe didn't intim- intimidate me that way. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. But but he was such such a grand guy. I mean, those soldiers over in Vietnam, he picked those guys up. I mean, just, hey, I'm Joe DiMezzo, an old broken-down baseball player. Yeah, really. You're an old broken-down baseball player. I'll tell you, he was the he was the greatest for the the morale of those guys. I'll never forget that that three weeks with Joe DiMaggio. Let me yeah, ask you was, the word the word regal, like there you you don't want to use that word too often because again, it, if you overuse it, then it loses what it is. But regal does that is that a word that sort of fits Joe DiMaggio? Uh, I think a word that fits Joe DiMaggio is the greatest. You know, now he got a lot of criticism off the field, but I can't, I can't, I can't uh, comment on Joe's uh, behavior with the press. I can only comment on his behavior with me. Mm-hmm. What I saw for 23 days with Joe DiMaggio. You know, he might have been a prick to some guys. He might have been nasty to some guys. Just like Ted Williams, I had nothing but good conversations with Ted Williams. And I didn't get to spend any time with him, just a couple hours in spring training a couple different times. But, you know, he was uh, just like Joe. They were American League players. Right. And we had no interleague play then. But I also think there's a, a mutual respect that has to happen if you're going to go, I don't know what, you know, what, what might have gone on with those guys, but let me tell you this. Mutual respect sort of opens up a door to have conversations that probably aren't going to happen with guys like that. For a lot of people, yeah, yeah. Well, I was I was kind of thrown in the oven with Joe just by flying to San Francisco and getting on that World Airliner to go to Vietnam. 
and I guess Joe saw the way I was. I'm an outgoing guy. Okay, it's hard to be a snob or be, you know, someone never says anything if you're around me. Okay, because I'm just an outgoing person. And Joe wasn't really an outgoing person. But I think being around me, he was more outgoing than he normally was. Give me, give me something. I'm going to ask about a couple of guys you played with. Uh, yeah. You played with Tony Perez very, very early in your career. As a matter of fact, in the minor leagues, right? I'm two days out of high school in 1960. Tony Perez is two months out of Cuba. I fly to Geneva, New York to play for the Geneva Reds. They have a Saguni Bossi, second baseman on the team, named Tony Perez. They put me at second. They put him at third. Okay, how many years ago was that? 60? Yeah. That's how many years I've known Tony Perez. He's one of the best friends I have. He's, without question, the best RBI guy I have ever been around. You know, he got almost 1,700 RBIs, and that was hitting after Johnny Bench. Johnny Bench didn't leave too many ducks on the park. I had a chance to catch up with Tony twice, where we did one of these types of conversations. He's the greatest. Well, and I'm going to tell you what I think moved him a little bit for a guy who had that kind of career. I had heard from multiple guys, both on that Reds team and then guys who played against those Reds teams, who said, by the way, the guy that gets shortchanged because he didn't win the MVP, that guy did, that guy did, and that guy did. Joe Morgan told this story, too, to me. Tony Perez, for a lot of guys, as you watch that team, if there is such a thing as glue, if there is such a thing as take that guy out and they're not the same team, Tony Perez was a great player who, because of circumstances, being around so many great players – probably got shortchanged. When I told him that, that I'd heard that from people who played against him and a couple of the Reds guys, he actually stopped for a second because I'm sure he's heard it before, but I think just hearing it every once in a while, he wasn't begging for it. He didn't know I was going to say it, didn't need for me to say it, but you could almost hear like that, that pause where that meant something to him this many years later after his career has been done. Oh, no question about it. But see, you have to understand that one of Tony Perez's problems if you want to call it a problem, I don't. It's just a situation. Okay, when the game was over in Cincinnati and you come in the clubhouse, the first guy, you, the locker you stumbled upon was Johnny Bench. Then all of a sudden you go down the other end of the, of the thing is my locker. Next to my locker is Joe Morgan's locker. So because of Tony's language, mm-hmm. he didn't get the just do that he should have got. But when you think about this, a lot of great players – in that situation, okay, would be Willie McCovey and Willie Mays. Would be Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle. Mm-hmm. Would be Eddie Matthews and Hank Aaron. There's one guy who gets all the publicity, and there's a great player behind him that don't get the just due. You understand right. what I'm saying? Yeah. Yep. Even today, there's certain teams, uh, you know, Mike Trout gets all the publicity. Rondon don't get any. And he was he got it all last year with the, with Washington. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know the players, and I know the players. All the superstars have superstars that are on the team, but no one knows it because all the attention is given to the superstar. How often did you let Tony know? And I'm not saying like physically sit down and tell him. Uh, I'm assuming the actions of that club, the respect that they showed him. I, I'm assuming he knew how important he was. No question yeah. about it. And why it took him 10 years to make the Hall of Fame, I have no idea. I have no idea what the hell they're thinking about. (laughs) 10 years to make the Hall of Fame with all those RBIs? 
after Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan? What, what do they want from the guy? He was, and, and where he helped us out is he was he was like a father to to a Geronimo, okay, to David Concepcion, to the Latin players. We had great Latin players, and Tony gave them the right direction when they were kids growing up, coming up. You know, Tony invaluable. Was, <laughs> yeah, it's invaluable. Oh, he was, he was. He was as important to the big red machine as anybody. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you anybody. said it on the record as well because I've heard that from other no, people. I've, I've said it many times. Good. Tony Perez is the best. If, if, if you've got a guy on second base and you need a hit, <laughs> I want Doggy up there. That's who I want. I don't want anybody else up there. Tell me about Bench. I don't. I don't want Mays. I don't want Aaron. I don't want Clemente. <laughs> I don't want. I want Tony Perez up there. If I got a man in scoring position and we need to get him home, and those other guys were great. But Tony just got so many clutch RBIs, okay? So many clutch RBIs. T- tell he's me, a great guy. He's a great guy to go along with it. Tell me, tell me about Johnny. Johnny, yeah. uh, Johnny's the greatest catcher ever to play the game of baseball. Now, I hope you understand this when I talk about Johnny. Okay, the best. I think the best defensive catcher ever was Pudge Rodriguez. I think the best offensive catcher ever was Mike Piazza. Mm-hmm. But I think the best overall catcher all around was Johnny Bench. Does that make any sense? Yeah, because, by the way, here's what I know, that if you're telling me that you're dropping Johnny Bench behind home plate in front of everybody else, I know that yeah. you know that he's the best to ever do it. Yeah, no question about it. And he, and he, and he, and he played. He never took off. He never took any days off. But the only the only problem Johnny and I ever had, and and I didn't ask for this or anything like this, is he could never understand or didn't want to understand that I was born three miles from the ballpark in Cincinnati. So the fans had a special liking for me because I was one of them. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I was a hometown boy. That'd be like me getting mad if we played in Bangor, Oklahoma, where Johnny's from, yeah. and they liked him more than they liked me. It wasn't anything to do about ability. It was just I'm a homegrown guy, and they pulled for me, and they liked the way I played. You know, Johnny couldn't play the way I played. He was a catcher. It's just like the greatest defensive third baseman ever was Brooks Robinson, the best offensive third baseman ever. Who would you say it was? Well, I saw a guy in Chipper put it up as a switch hitter. Uh, well, know, I, I know Schmidt because of the MVPs. Would you rather have Chipper Jones at bat or George Brett? I, I'm taking Chipper because of the switch hitting ability. Yeah, but George had left handers. George, uh, George was a, a 3,000 hit guy, wasn't he? Yeah, Chipper more power. Chipper was good. Chipper was good, but Chipper disappointed me because uh, – I didn't think Chipper should have retired when he retired. The last year he played, he had a good year. Didn't he? Remember? He had yeah. a good year? Well, listen, I'm, it's funny you bring this up because uh, I'll, I will tell you, full disclosure, he's not only a baseball friend, but he's a personal friend. I've watched from the time he came up, certainly in the 95 season when it was his rookie year, I, I've, I've gotten to know Chipper. I was there the night that he got the phone call at his house from the Hall of Fame. There was probably about 16 people in the house, and I was one of them. So I've known him a long time. It's funny you say that because he, he 
I've asked him, and, and he said I was the only one that really asked him, or at least I asked him sooner than everybody else. He had to have had an offer to go play for somebody else, and he did. There was no doubt about it. I know two of the teams that actually said, you know, Chipper, my God, come on in, be in the clubhouse, come hit. you DH if it's an American League team. Come on in the DH. We want you around. Yeah. And he said no to it, and he, and he left money on the table on top of everything else. But, but he, had had, he, he had $10 million eyes and 10-cent feet and 10-cent knees. And he just said, yeah. and this, by the way, this is another thing. He didn't stretch until he was like 37 years old. He said, I never had a stretch. Once I realized I had a stretch, man, a long day at the ballpark or a long well, day at the, the ballpark. The only, the only thing I didn't like, didn't like about Chipper, it wasn't really Chipper, it was his manager. Okay? If I'm a manager of a baseball player, I'm not going to ever tell the, put, uh, the player, don't run hard because I don't want you to screw up your knees. I don't want young players uh, hearing that. I don't want young players say, uh, say, uh, saying hearing that. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm telling. I'm giving the player an okay, not to run his ass off to first base because he's got a bad knee. I, I I don't believe in that. If he's got a bad knee, take him out of the lineup. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I I, I just don't. I could never tell a player, don't run hard because I don't want you to get hurt. Okay. That's right. Don't tackle him hard because you might get hurt. And I, I just think that the chipper was good for the game. And I, I didn't know he uh, he didn't have another year with. You mean Atlanta wouldn't have gave him another year if he wanted it? Oh no no no! He had a contract. He, he had a great last year. He played. He had a great year. Yeah, he he walked away. He left money on the table. He actually just said it was done though. It was done. There, there well, are. He had enough years of enough money. I mean, I don't think it was a money situation. No 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 no. No, he just said it was done. He he did it in spring training. He actually announced it in spring training, and he had just uh-huh. said getting up that winter, thinking about it. He he. Now look, I will I will say this: when you say you're going to do it in in spring training, and then all of a sudden maybe right. you feel better, you get a little pep, you you have a good year. He was never going to yeah. turn around. He was never going to sign with another team, and he had offers too. So I give him credit for yeah. when he said it was done. It was done. I I guess okay. your your thing is make him rip it off you as opposed to handing it to them. Is that kind of what that is then? Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I just find out that most, most athletes who get up there in years, if they come off of a great year, they're not ready to retire because mm-hmm. you still can do it. Now, if he'd hit a sub sub year where he can't do it no more, then I understand. You don't hang around for the money, but if you still could produce, I mean, and you still love the game, which I think Chipper does. I, I couldn't walk away from that. Yeah, that's the difference with Chipper and me. Right, and and I I respect it because I think he he might have. So I'll tell you, you saw Schmidt. What happened to Schmidt? He retires during the year, and that broke him up because I think part of Mike could not believe that he was actually leaving before a season was done. Chipper had great respect for Schmidt. I'm not saying I'm not trying to pop psychologist this, but I think it yeah. would have been worse in Chipper's mind if he would have gotten a June and both knees and the feet, and he's just not. And then, oh, my God, they're either going to have to sit me, I don't want that, or I'm going to have to retire, I don't want to do it that way. And I just think that maybe well, there was Schmidt, a... Mike Schmidt made a mistake because I went to him and asked him to come to Cincinnati when I finished the second four years in a row. And if he'd have come to Cincinnati and played third base for me, we'd have probably won a couple pennants. But he wanted to be a Philly for the rest of his career. It's what that's why okay. Chipper said no to other things too. So hold on. So you're telling okay. me that you so went to Schmidt. Let me ask you a question yeah. on that line, right? Yeah. There, okay. 
Uh, Chipper wanted to be Atlanta Brave for the rest of his life. Uh, Mike Schmidt wanted to be a Philly for the rest of his life. Okay. How has that helped him the last 10 years? There's been a lot of players who played for one organization. I'm the last guy in the world to want to leave Cincinnati, but they got rid of me. I was born there. I played 16 years there. I went back. But I went to Philadelphia for five years. Mm-hmm. I mean, a Chipper, I mean, what? what how has Atlanta Braves helped Chipper since he retired? What, they have Chipper Jones bobblehead night or something? I don't know, man. I, so, so hold, but, but again, you talk about how guys are wired differently. Um, I yeah. think, I think it matters. Obviously, it would matter more to some guys than others. And if a guy's leaving money on the table, if Mike is saying no, and I'd never well, heard that. St- All right, forget about the money. I think what we're talking about here, and I think you can answer this because you know it. I think Chipper, uh, even though he had a good year that last year, he just wasn't having fun no right. more. Right. Right. And if you're dragging, right? You're not having fun no more. It's going to show on the field, but it didn't show on the field the last year he played. But maybe that was the relaxed. Maybe he was relaxed and played well because he had made the announcement and and settled it at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. So uh, he made the right decision because you can't. If you don't feel good playing, you're not going to play good. But he's also beloved here in a lot of you know, and I think people sort of respect the idea that that's our guy. We, we we drafted him and and we went through good shit with him yeah, and we no went. Matter, through... No matter how good he is, he's never going to be the best Atlanta Brave player ever to play. And and, and he'll tell you that he has I great mean, respect for Henry. Yeah, he has great Henry, respect for Henry. Henry's the greatest. I mean, it's just it's just a fact. I mean, he's the greatest third baseman. Uh, you know, he's he's right there with Mike Schmidt as far as mm-hmm. and George Brett. There's there there are three in their own category. So what, you're right. He, he was a switch batter, no question about it. It helped him. It helped him. When did you know personally that you couldn't do what you could do five years ago, six years ago? And how do you reconcile that? Because look, I know your answer is I got to work harder. I got to make sure that I get out of the yeah. box. I know all that stuff. But there has to be a moment when either you're not picking now, it up out know, of a pitcher's me, hand. Yeah, for me it wasn't. Let me tell you why. Because. Uh, the last couple of years I played, I was player manager. So I could play whenever I wanted to play. And I never did retire. You know, the last game I started as a player, I got five for five. I broke 12 records the last game I played. And then I tried to pinch hit twice and goose cottage and Lance McCullers struck me out. And, and my my first baseman backup was Tony Perez, who was chasing the Latino home run record. I didn't retire. I just quit playing. I didn't play anymore. And that was in August. I just let him play the rest of the year. So, I wouldn't worry about reti- retiring. I just, just said to myself, if I'm going to be a pinch hitter, I can't do that. I'm 45 years old. Right. That's how old I was when I, reti- when I quit, 45. So what's it like though at thirty eight to know you're not twenty? Like what? How do you reconcile the idea that you're not the same question. player? Yeah, that's a good question. But I led the league in hits when I was forty. Yeah, never mind. Then you're the wrong guy to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so how about when you're forty five? 
Gossage gets you in a pinch hit appearance. How about when you're 45 then? Uh, I, what happened to me is this, okay? I had to retire because I had a quick plan because when you're a manager of a baseball team, there's three things you must do. I mean, if we were a player manager, excuse me, and I was a player manager, okay? You have to take care of your players. You have to take care of the press. And you have to take care of your skills. You have to hone your own skills. So I can't ask batting practice pitchers to come to the ballpark at 2 o'clock in the afternoon for a 7 o'clock game to throw me extra batting practice. So I, I quit working because you can't, you can't get away from the press because they'll run you out of town. And you sure in the hell can't get away from your players. Yeah. I just didn't have enough hours in the day to continue as a player. And plus, I was 45 years old, 44 years old. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So I got to, you got to cooperate with the press, uh, or they'll run you out of town. And you got to cooperate with your young players. And I had, in my, in my years as, as managing the Reds, I saw 32 players get their first hit. 32. That's a lot of players. I gave a lot of young players an opportunity to play. You know, I'm talking about O'Neill and Larkin and Sabo and Daniels and Milner and Reedus and Davis and Browning and Dibble and Joe Oliver and Terry McGriff. And, you know, I had so many, Jeff Treadway, Stillwell. I mean, I, I had I had all-stars in every position. And it, it was a fun group to, to manage. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. Listen to this. You talk about fun playing baseball. Okay. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna run down a baseball team for you. Okay. That that was my teammates at one time or another. You got it? Yep. Okay. Catcher, Johnny Bench. Okay. Third baseman, Mike Schmidt. Shortstop, Barry Larkin. Second baseman, Joe Morgan. First baseman, Tony Perez. Left fielder, Frank Robinson. Center fielder, Tim Rings. Right fielder, Andre Dawson. Left-hand pitcher, Steve Carlton. Right-hand pitcher, Tom Seaver. How's that for a lineup I played with? Yeah, roll it out for 162. Holy shit. Is that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think any other, do you think any other player can say that? Uh, no, I'd have to think about it, but probably not. And look, the benefit of you, so I will say this, again, unlike Brooks and unlike Chipper and George Brett, the benefit of you being in different uniforms is you had different experiences than those yes. guys. Not better, not worse, but you certainly had different experiences. Yes. No Who, question about it. I enjoyed, uh, hell, when I went to Montreal to play, we had three Hall of Famers yeah. plus me, plus Francona, plus Wally. We had Steve Rogers, had Charlie uh, Lee. And Jeff Reardon is a, is a, a save guy, you know. Brent Smith. We we had good players. That, that was that was one of the only teams I ever was on. Okay, and I usually don't ever say anything negative about a manager because I had twelve of them. Okay, but the manager I had in uh, Montreal was a really really nice guy, Bill Verdon. Remember that name? I sure do. Okay. He was really a nice guy, but he was not the right guy for that team. We needed a kick-ass 
aggressive type manager. He wasn't a kick-ass uh, manager like that. You understand what I'm saying? So, so let me ask it this way: If Sparky was the manager up in Montreal, what happens? We don't want. We don't want a lot of games. It's, I, I, here, this, here's, how about this one? This is very unusual. Not too, too many players can't say this either. Okay, I played five years in Philadelphia. Five for four managers: hmm. Pat Corrales, Danny Ozark, Paul Owens and uh, Dallas Green. And I'm going to tell you right now, I believe we won the 1980 World Series not because Mike Schmidt, and he was MVP, not because of Lezinski, not because of Carlton, not because of Boone or Trio, or Bate McBride or Gary Maddox, Larry Boa. We won the World Series because of Dallas Green. He was a kick-ass manager that that team needed. And I don't know if it was because he came through their organization and he knew how to handle Boa. He knew how to handle Boone, Lezinski, Maddox. McBride came in the trade. Trio came in the trade. They didn't need handling, though. They were great players. So I, I, I tell someone every year that Dallas Green was the reason we won the World Series. It wasn't anybody else but Dallas Green. He kept us in order. He kept your egos in order. Plus, he knew, you know, he knew baseball. Mm-hmm. And plus, I got one grand slam in my life, and I got it off Dallas Green. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you let him know about it. Yeah, I did every day. <laughs> so I got to know him when he was working stuff after his manager days. He, you know, he did stuff around yeah. the Atlanta Braves. And and yeah. I, I, so I'll tell you what I've said. Uh, I, I, I'm. Born in Brooklyn, raised in New Jersey. I'm not telling you I was looking for a fight, but I did sort of have a mentality, probably because of who, who I grew up with and around, that you would size uh-huh. a guy up. You'd size a guy up. Like, what would happen if I ever had to get into a fight with this guy? Dallas Green is one of those guys that I assess. This would not be a good day for me. I mean, he was big. He was strong. He was he was loud. I mean, he was a lot of things, but he was a great guy. Mm-hmm. He was a smart guy. Oh, when he walked in, Pete, down in Florida, when he walked in for spring training games and he sat in that little area uh, where, you yeah. know, you get, a, you get lunch before a 1 o'clock game, unbelievable yeah. baseball guy to talk to. Because, again, there's something oh, intimidating about his look, uh, well, he, but there was nothing intimidating he, about him. He approached baseball in every manner. Manager, farm director, mm-hmm. general manager, scout. I mean, he knew everything about the game of baseball. And that year in Philadelphia, he knew everything about the Philly players. I mean, he knew their background. He knew he knew the way they grew up. And I, I wasn't hard to manage. I just went and played hard every day. What's the difference in the expectation from a Philly fan versus Cincinnati fan? Now, again, you're a hometown guy, so it's a little bit different. You know that mentality, and they like you. Philly fan versus Cincinnati fan in terms of well, the I pressure think, going to the ballpark. Cincinnati fans, I think Cincinnati fans, uh, because of uh, the big red machine, uh, Cincinnati fans kind of expect you to win. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Philly fans expect the Phillies to win. You know, because we won, we won in seventy, we won in seventy-three, we won in seventy-five, we won in seventy-six. Uh, you know, we went to the World mm-hmm. Series a lot of years, and but Philly fans are great. It's just like New York fans think they're the most knowledgeable, and that's only because they have more press outlets than anybody else. They read about it more. They see it more. They hear it more. 
I mean, but there again, there's there's a lot of great fans everywhere. But don't forget, baseball started in 1869 in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. First night being played in 1935 Crosby Field. So people in Cincinnati, we believe we're the baseball capital of the world because that's where it started with the Red Stockings. But no one ever says Cincinnati is the baseball capital of the world. You know, people say New York is. They don't say Philadelphia is. They don't say Pittsburgh is. But that's okay. But you couldn't we bullshit. Ate. You you couldn't you couldn't jake it in Philadelphia. I'm assuming because no, you're going to get called on. Here's, it. here's Philadelphia. Here's Philadelphia fans. This is, this is Philadelphia fans in a, in a nutshell. Philadelphia. That's why they like me so much. Philadelphia fans want you to do, do two things. They want you to win, and they want you to bust your ass. If you bust your ass for Philly fans, they'll never boo you and never do anything negative to you. If you don't run a ball out, don't play in Philadelphia. You're not going to make it. You're not going to last. And to be honest with you, every team out there in every sport should want you to win and want you to bust your ass. Those are two things you must do as a player. Does he agree with that? Yeah, and and I think there's a quote. I think it's attributed to you. I think it's you, so I'll, I'll try to paraphrase it, and you fix it up if it is you. You don't worry about getting booed unless you're wearing a white uniform. No, no, I, I said there's one thing you never want to have happen to you is getting booed with a white uniform on Yeah, because that means you're getting booed at home. At home, right. That's one thing you don't want. It's it's natural for me to get booed on the road. I got booed more than anybody. And they were stupid by booing me because it inspired me. It, it made me want to do better because I was getting – the best way to shut up a booer is to get a base hit. Right. Not strike out. Okay? That's just the way it is. I never got – I played in three home teams, Montreal, Philadelphia, and Cincinnati. I never get. I never remember ever getting booed in any white uniform I wore. Yeah, and that's the tell. The tell is that huh? the city. Well, the tell is that the city knows yeah. what you're doing night in, night out. What your attempt to do every every night is to go win this game. Bust my ass to go win this game, and and then you get yeah, to go like home when, and tell somebody you were there. When I broke the record, it it seemed to me like uh, there was fifty fifty two thousand people at the game. I felt like I knew half of them because I grew up there. Yeah. So I got... they all knew about my dad. They all knew about my dad in the 40s and 50s playing football. Hell, for a long time, I was the second well-known Pete Rose in Cincinnati. That's funny. That's funny. It is funny. True. So I got to ask you about a certain night because you want to talk about fans being ape shit. The Gene Garber night with the 44-game hitting streak. Yeah. I, I, you've played in World Series games. Look, there wasn't a lot going on in Atlanta in terms of winning. So this was their right. World Series. This was the Super Bowl. This was everything else. I don't know what you – you strike me as a guy who remembers not only the at-bats, but certainly the atmosphere leading yeah. up to the game postgame. Oh, yeah. Uh, you've been in big games, big games, the biggest games that, that, that the sport has to offer. But when I listen to the audio of that last at-bat, that crowd is yeah. going ape shit. That crowd is, and and it's a crowd that hadn't well, had a lot yeah. to cheer about. There was a lot on the line, yeah. But let me let me tell you one thing about that. And and Gene Garber's a nice guy, and he was a pretty good pitcher, by the way. And, and all I said about Gene Garber that I believe if I'd have went up there without a bat, I'd have walked because he he, he didn't come at me. I don't expect him to throw one right down Broadway and Express Lane. 
But I know one guy was rooting for me that night, okay? And it was Ted Turner. And I'll tell you why. Oh, I know why. Okay, I'll t- I'll t- I know why. The next night's gate. Well, no, that gate. The night I, the, the night my streak ended, 26,000 people walked up to yeah. go to the game. Uh-huh. And if I'd have got a hit, there'd have been another 30,000. And in those days, the Braves were drawing 10,000. Yeah, no, I know. The numbers were incredible. And that's why they yeah. were also going apeshit. And I, I know why Ted wanted you to go, because 45 yeah. would have served his well. Yeah, they would have. Yeah. But there again, there, there again uh, you know, I hit two balls right on the nose that night. I hit a line drive to Horner, it caught against his chest. And Nick Williams, I believe, started that game. I hit one. I hit one to him up the middle in Atlanta, and the ball went in his glove. He didn't catch it. It caught him. That had been a center, a single to center field. And I believe the next night I got three or four hits. So it just wasn't meant to be. But forty-four was pretty tough. Yeah. How do you how do how do you leave the ballpark? Because look, here's the other story: legendary, true, half true. Uh, the the attributable attributable quote to you was. He was pitching like it was Game Seven of the World Series, and then you know what he said. What did he say? He said he was hitting like it was Game Seven of the World Series. Well, uh, yeah, because uh, yeah, he, he was in a tough spot. But but what I'm saying, even the last pitch was three and two, was a foot and a half outside. I had a swing at it because the score was eighteen to four. How, how do you? I'm really asking now. When you get to the hotel that night. 44 yeah. are you are you you're proud of the number you got the national league record uh but but what part of you is saying damn no, no i was i was disappointed no question about it because let me tell you something about that. i was disappointed because that streak helped a lot of people a lot of that streak was on the road and you know, i remember 35 and 36 i was in new york and the people were coming out to see that streak mm-hmm. okay that's that's what disappointed me about it. I wanted to keep it going because it was fun for me. It's, 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 the guy I take my head off to in that streak was our public public uh, public relations director Jim Ferguson because he kept the streak away from the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, uh, if I went one and we lost the game, they'd all come into my locker. Right. That wasn't so. That right. wasn't so. He'd have a special room for me okay. to go to before the game and after the game because you don't want 100 riders around Joe Morgan's locker and step on his shoes right. and stuff. Right. So Jim Ferguson kept the hitting streak away from uh, the locker well, that's room, a good which call. is really good. That's a good call. I'd never yeah. heard you. Now, do you re- what do you think you would have been like? Because you said it was fun, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. What do you think you would have been like if you pushed it past fifty, and you're going to bed going, "I'm at fifty-one." I know it's just a supposition, but you know, but you know your personality. Oh, I don't want it. I mean, I don't want it. Hell, I had seven hitting streaks over twenty games. Seven. That was just a longer one, and uh, I got a bunch uh, twice in that streak in the last at bat. I was just hot, man. I just. You know, I, I remember one time uh, I had a month. I forgot what month it was, but the last the last day of the month before I got four for five. Okay, the first day of the month after the month I got four for five. Okay, and I got I got uh, fifty two hits in the month 
of July. Mm. <laughs> and I got four for five in June, and I got four for five in August. I got 60 hits in 30 days. And by the way, you had, four, you had four days off in July because of the All-Star game, too. So you, yeah, you played yeah, fewer I games. Yeah, I was hot, man. Yeah. I was hot. I mean, every, every day I was getting two or three hits. What's it's, it look like? What's the baseball look like when, when you're in that kind of ball. stuff? Yeah. A beach ball. Now, the last two times I pinched hit, it looked like a buffering. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm old, I'm old enough to know what that is. Yeah, I, I, an aspirin. Yeah, an aspirin. an aspirin. I'm old enough to know. Yeah. All right, so here's my last... Do you? I, I I don't know why. One day, um, I spoke to Phil Rizzuto many 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 years ago, uh, uh-huh. seventeen eighteen, and I grew Money up listening. Still. Yes, and I grew up listening to him. He had said yeah. he, he. It took me about a year and a half, almost two years, to set it up, because he just he was re, you know he was done. He hadn't. He was out of the booth for a while, and and he just didn't really wasn't comfortable telling stories anymore. He's, he was just kind of done. I got lucky because right. I had met Whitey Ford in Atlanta, and I did this uh-huh. same thing with Whitey. Whitey uh, was the one in front of me, in front of me, called Phil Rizzuto and said, do the thing with the Italian guy in Atlanta. You'll enjoy it. So I, I get a blessing. I become a made man by Whitey Ford. So then Rizzuto comes on, and he was phenomenal, phenomenal. Phil Rizzuto, mwah, like he was, he was everything you'd hope for when you grew up listening to the guy. You knew the stories. You knew the players he played with. You know he's a Hall of Famer. You knew his greatness, but you also knew all the stories around him. But he went deeper than that. But I don't know why, because, well, I kind of do. As we were winding down, he had been at the point, and this happened with Duke Snyder and a couple of other guys. Most of his teammates had passed. And, and we had a conversation about the thing that he missed the most. The games were great, but he missed the clubhouse. He missed the, the bus. He missed, and I could hear it in his voice as he was talking about it. He was thinking about it. So I, I asked him, when you go to bed at night, do you dream about being young? Do you dream about being a player? Are you back on a train or a bus? Are you in a big moment? Is there anything like that that happens? And when I tell you, he stops, 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 and you could tell he was getting emotional about it. And it, I did start to ask people that question afterwards because it really is amazing. The games are great, no doubt about it. But it yeah. really is the camaraderie. It's all the other stuff that we're not privy to. I think I can have an idea of what it must be like to be in that setting, but I really don't. And I think when players try to explain it, they try real hard, but I think most everybody falls short in trying to explain what that life is. But when you ask a guy who's 82, who's some of his best friends in the world have passed, and he said, yeah. I just can't pick up the phone and call him, there'll be times when I'm thinking, oh, let me call, and you go, oh, my God. So I'll ask you. Do you have those dreams? Have you had moments where you've actually been young again? You're playing in a big game. You're, there's no. something going on. No, I, I, no, I don't, I don't have those kind of dreams. But, but uh, there again, uh, I don't think a month goes by that uh, I don't talk to Perez, Morgan, or Bench. Okay. I don't talk to Concepcion because he's in Venezuela. Geronimo is in Dominican Republic. I see Foster and Griffey in Cincinnati periodically. So. You know, and, and fortunately, uh, the big red machine, we're still intact. Right. You know, we're, we're all in our 70s. Uh, but, you know, we all know what's going to happen eventually. We're all going to go uh, where we want to go, where we want to be. But uh, uh, it, our relationships are just life-lasting life because we went through so much together. And, and. You know, as a baseball player, you don't have a lot of relationships with teammates at home. 
because everybody goes their own way. Right. Everybody's got family, their own house. All the relationships in baseball are on the road. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and by the way, I think I think part of this goes back the to bus, the ballpark. You right. take the bus back. There's only so many restaurants open after the game, so you you congregate around the same restaurants, and uh, you, you're in the lobby of the hotel. I mean, just there's you're around the players so much more on the road than you are at home. So not having the ability to be in the ballpark because of all the stuff uh, later in the career, how much did that hurt you? Because again, I, the games are great. I, every guy that I've talked to, and I've spoken to a bunch of Hall of Famers, I've spoken and we, we talked about it, the Tracy Stallers, the Jim Maloney's, the Jack Fishers, the yeah. guys whose names a lot of people don't know. Um, yeah. There seems to be a common thread that, look, you didn't get along the same with everybody. But the idea of that room, well, I don't, it's yeah, ours. I don't think everybody gets along the yeah. same with everybody. Right. But all I can, all I can tell you one thing that, uh, that I learned through my career, that uh, it seemed like the older you got – the earlier you went to the ballpark. You know, I remember on the road, I'd go to the ballpark when I was with the Phillies at 2, 2.30, and guys are already there. We got a 7, 7.30 game. Same with the Reds. You know, you're either at the ballpark having fun, playing cards or whatever, mm-hmm. or you're, you're back in your room relaxing. Right. You're not, you're not out to visit in the town. So... It seems like the the older I got, the earlier I went to the ballpark. And as a manager, you, I got to beat the players there because I got to have the lineup up before the players get there. And most of the time, uh, if I'm changing the lineup, not most of the time, all the time, I would tell a player that may don't may not play every day that you're playing tomorrow night, right? So he can go home and sleep yep. on that and do. What he has to do to get right. ready for the game. Which, by the way, is I've always said that's that's the way that you're supposed to handle men. Yeah, no question yeah. about it. So, is this true about you? Because I would imagine you'd be a hell of a good time in a bar, but you're not a drinker or a smoker. No, I didn't go into bars. I didn't. I went into restaurants. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, you can ask Maloney or any of those guys that play with me. I didn't go into bars because I I, I, I didn't go into bars because I didn't drink. I used to I used to lead the league every year. If there ever was a stat, I led the league in room service. <laughs> I got room service after the game. I got room service, you know, at breakfast, uh, day of a game. I mean, I just loved room service. So, so why do you think in a, in a culture and let's be honest, in a culture that did, you know, the the drink in the bar, the late night uh, hotel bar, spring yeah. training, go out? Why do you think yeah. you you didn't? Because my dad didn't. Okay. Uh, and I learned at a very early age, uh, you and I are teammates, okay? We go out tonight. You get shit-faced. I drink iced tea. We go to the ballpark today, tomorrow. Who's going to feel better to play? Yeah. And by the way, you could also end up resenting that guy a little bit if he's not on his game. Well, I could care less what guys did. I mean... No, no, no. Uh, if that I'm, if that next we, day, though... No, if we, in, we have... We didn't have stop flying drunks on the team. I mean, jeez, uh, uh, I don't even know if uh, we had any big drinkers at all. Morgan would have a glass of wine now and then. Perez, you know, him and David would go their own, own way with the, with the Latinos. Uh, Bench wasn't a big drink, a drinker. Morgan, uh, you know, Gary Carter didn't drink. Mike Schmidt didn't drink. 
Carlton was a wine connoisseur, but, uh, you know, he was a pitcher. He could play every five days. Right. Listen, I saw a lot of guys come before me and leave before me. Excuse me, come after me right. and leave before me. But they had fun. There's just certain dedications you got to make uh, when you're young, and it's hard to make those dedications. Sure, I ran around. I went out. I was young. I was single. But you can you can go out and have fun without drinking. Well, I like what you said. I like what you said about your dad. Look, the and by the way, when your dad told you that story after you got two batting titles, and he said you didn't run down the first baseline, he's talking about the name on the back of the uniform. That's not just yours. That's mine. Yes, he was. Yeah. Don't embarrass me in this town like that. That's what he said, and I understood what he said. And I knew what he said because I watched him play. I watched him play my whole life. He played the way I played. Uh, well, I should rephrase it. I played the way he played. Right. Best night you ever okay. had. Best night you ever had on a ball field. Whatever your definition uh, of best night is, by the way. Well, because I don't know the best night, but because I wasn't a home run hitter. I remember one game in, in Chase Stadium. I got three home runs and two singles. Got a home run off of Nino Espinosa. Got a home run off of Butch Metzger. And got a, a home run off of Marty Canejo. And I got that five-hit day that day. Because I wasn't a home run hitter. Right. And I hit three home runs at three different fields. Left, center, and right. That's a, that's a good day at the office. As a matter of fact, the whole ballpark was your office that day. That's, a, that's, that's an unbelievable yeah, was, day. That was a office. fun day. That was yeah. a fun day. What's the worst day? Uh... Well, I hit you know, one day I, I faced the Phillies and they had a young pitcher, really good, named Ray Culp. You remember that name? I don't. Okay, he struck me out five times. Oh. Oh. Four on more foul. Four on more foul tips. Let me ask you a question. How many times do you think that guy told that story? Well, I don't know if it's true. Yeah, no. Ray Culp. <laughs> C-U-L-P. That struck me out five times one day. Four of them were, were foul tips. That, that is an all-time bar story or an all-time grandchildren story. <laughs> Let me tell you what I did to Pete Rose. Granddaddy got him five times in one day. He did? Yeah. He did. And by the way, you, you have to pitch nine innings to actually get a guy five times in a day. <laughs> you have to be there. Oh, yeah. P- pillar to post. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of guys back in them days pitched nine innings. Yes, damn right. I, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Juan Marichal had 160 some uh, complete games. Yeah, his his agent his agent would sue everybody associated with the organization if they made him pitch that many innings. Now <laughs> today, yeah, be a lawsuit. <laughs> All right, hey Pete, I just want to finish up with this: Are you are you a better guy now? Like when you assess who you are. Look, you sound very comfortable with yourself. I, I know that about you. Look, we all have our moments. I call them the 3 a.m. moments. You're sitting on the edge of the bed yeah. going, how the hell did this happen to me? You had to yeah. have the 3 a.m. moment with all, the, with all the shit that went on with you. You had to have a moment where you're sitting at the end of the bed going, I can't, how, how the hell did this happen to me? Nah, I, I, I just understand I made the mistake. And uh, most people, most people that are Pete Rose fans are willing to, you know, let me uh, – Forgive, I made a mistake. Let me go on with my life. But there's always going to be contractors. There's always guys when I played said I couldn't hit, or said I couldn't run, or I couldn't throw. That's just the way it is. But 
let me, I, I'm the nicest guy in the world. I am. I'm nice to people. I understand fans. Uh, I wish more players understood fans like I do because it's, they're seeing what's going on right now if you're, if you're nasty to fans. Yeah. What I mean by that, I'm watching the Cardinals in Pittsburgh right now. As you know, there's nobody in the seats. Right. You know what seats are for? Is that a yay or a nay? Yeah, I, I'm assuming the asses of the people who are paying the freight to come That's watch you play. For, yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Seats are for asses. That's what they're for. And that you just want you just want that you the more people you have that's why I used to love to go to L.A. It, you know even, even though we had a face uh, Drysdale and, and Colfax Sutton but but I I wore Sutton's ass out though he couldn't I could go through a blindfold against him and get two hits but but there again uh, every night every night we played in L.A. they put the attendance up on the board in the left center fifty two thousand and four hundred. Yeah. Yep. Every game in L.A. That's amazing. Are you kind of amazed? So you just talked about your you sign autographs. Sandy Koufax is again. I, I had the pleasure of meeting him at the All Century Team thing here. Um, yeah, in Atlanta, he came un, unannounced. And by the way, I think that was part of the deal. If if they announced he was coming, from what I understand, he wasn't going to come. So I had, and my dad was a Brooklyn Dodger fan growing up. By the way, he was a yeah. he. I, I know more about that 50s Brooklyn Dodger team. That was years before I was born, but I know about that team, and I know the legend and lore of Sandy Koufax. Are you – Are you? Di- I, I would love to hear Sandy Koufax tell stories, not to brag on himself, but I, are, are you kind of amazed that he has been able to stay as private – conscious decision to stay as private as he has he all these years? Yeah, yeah, he worked at it, though. Yeah. I mean, Sandy's really a nice guy. I, I, you probably know this. Most guys would not know this. You know where Sandy Koufax went to school? Yeah, he was in Brooklyn. Where he went to college? Oh, uh, f- was it Fordham on a basketball scholarship? Basketball scholarship, University of Cincinnati. Cincinnati, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. he's got the hugest hand. He's got he's got hands like uh, Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> you know, and and. and and, and I don't want to talk about Kofax because I was 10 for 57 off Kofax. That's 175. I couldn't hit Kofax, but a lot of guys couldn't. Yeah, no. He was good. Do you, you know Sandy Kofax? Uh, Kofax, he was kind of afraid to hit. I don't, I don't know if he ever got a hit. He was afraid to hit. You know what I mean? How can a guy like that be afraid to bat? The Colfax is like that. He batted right-handed, by the way. And he got the other pitcher on that team could hit better than any pitcher. Oh, yeah. That was Drysdale. Oh, yeah, he dug him in. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So why did Colfax – what was your problem with Colfax? Well, first of all, he had great stuff. Yeah. I mean, Colfax was a left-handed uh, uh, Nolan Ryan. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is – Every time they went out there, they were capable of pitching a no-hitter. Okay? Because here's what Koufax didn't do. A lot of pitchers do. Because Koufax didn't throw a slider. Okay? A lot of sliders will break a guy's bat and hit a quail over the shortstop's head. Mm -hmm. Or hit a quail over the second baseman's head. Koufax had a fastball right over the top and a curveball right over the top. 
snowing, Ryan, fastball over the top, curveball over the top. And they didn't have they didn't have pitches that would break bats. They'd strike you out. Right. A lot of guys will pitch a one hitter, but it was a quail to left field. Mm-hmm. It was a broken bat single to right field. And that's why that's why those guys got no hitters. Yeah. Well the swing and miss stuff is is just incredible. Oh yeah. 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 All right. Well, well I'd, I'd hate, I'd hate to think. <laughs> I would really hate to think how both of those guys pitching today, how many strikeouts oh, they would have. Well, because nobody gives a shit. Like we talked earlier, nobody gives a shit. Yeah. You just, you just yeah, walk it back. Yeah. And by the way, that's called three. those guys would be smelling blood on their drive to the ballpark. Oh, they, they, they'd have three hundred strikeouts. <laughs> But that, yeah, here's another thing the strikeouts do. You know this, and I know this. It gets the pitch count up. Yeah. Yep. Well, which is why Maddox. If I'm a pitcher, if I'm a pitcher I want the leadoff hitter to get, hit the first pitch for a base hit. Okay, then the next hitter, I want him to hit the second pitch, a one-hopper to shorter second. Yeah. <laughs> then I had three pitches and two outs. Yep. The, That's what I want. The inability to, and by the way, now pitch counts and everything else being more prevalent, there was no, there was no such thing as a pitch count when these guys were going, so it didn't matter. No. Uh, but no. the thing that you try to, you know, when you talk to young guys and then you hear other pitchers talk, nobody knows Maddox really. He had three thousand strikeouts, but they were the yeah. quietest. Like it was, it was almost. Yeah. Guys would tell me it's like the embarrassing over four. You, you go home and you go, how the hell did I just go over four? I should have been able to hit at yeah. least three of those pitches, but you really couldn't. But the thing with him is the eight pitch inning. The nine pitch inning. Yeah. He's like, I don't give a yeah. shit about strikeouts. What do I care? He said, I need outs. They don't. Yeah. And Seaver said it. Seaver said, I had a lot of strikeouts, but they're not paying me yeah. to strike guys out. They're, they're paying me to get guys out. Right. The only one is strikeouts. Strikeouts uh, prevalent when you got a guy out third and one out. That's when you want to strike. Right. Out. You want to be able to dial it up and get get that out yeah. that way. Yeah. Get that strikeout when that sacrifice flies in order. Well, and the other thing, that, whether it's shifting and everything else, I'm not really sure why guys decide that they don't want to use the other half of the ballpark. I don't either. I can't either. I wish they shifted on me. Yeah, oh God. That's it. <laughs> All right, last thing. If I walked into your house, would I know that you were Pete Rose, the baseball player? And I'm not asking bragging or anything else. Like, what do you have? Like, what's important to you from your career? Uh Jesus. Well, I don't have anything here. I got it all in storage. Okay. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Just uh, World Series rings, World yeah. Series trophy. Yeah, those kind of things. Yeah. Do, do you it feel. It doesn't happen very often. Do you feel. It happen. Right. Do you Man, feel. Thanks. Do you feel bad for. Oh, I was just. I swear to God, I was about to mention his name. You feel bad for Williams? You feel bad for Banks? Like those guys, as great as they were, never had that experience? Well, Willie only had it once. Then. Yeah, and Hank won it once. I mean, those are the type of guys, okay, I always said this, that your Mazes, your Aarons, your Clementes, you want them in the World Series every year <laughs> because they're the best players that you got. Right. And they're on stage as a World Series. Yep. You want them to take the stage. And they'd all been really good World Series players, probably if they if they made it. Right. Yeah, that's I, got. I, I was lucky. I got to do six of them. Yeah, it's got to be a kick in the dick when you realize that, you know. And, and by the way, I don't poo-poo individual statistics, and I'm not saying that. 
but but the idea that you didn't have an opportunity or you never really celebrated or think about this the 10 year anniversary 25 year anniversary of certain teams yeah. championship teams yeah. that that doesn't yeah. go away it's not just even when you're done playing no. it's the next 15 you're years right. plus of your life you're right listen there's a lot of things happen to me and good good things mm-hmm. in baseball you know one bad thing obviously but the the best feeling you feeling you can ever have is when you can host that World Series trophy for the first time as a world champion. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky because the first time I was able to do that, I happened to be MVP in that World Series. That's right. Yep. Because that's a feeling that you and the and the media or anybody else cannot tell me how it feels. That's something you have to witness to understand it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I believe it's it. Like, Look, I it's like it's like I can't tell you no, well, you, your wife. I can't tell her how it feels to have a baby. Right. She's the only one who knows how it feels. Mm-hmm. I can tell you how it feels to lift a World Series trophy. Yeah, and and it's funny because because a lot of I I'm very honest about this. I've been in the clubhouse when a World Series was won here in '95. I you know I watched yeah. the celebration as a as an outsider, feeling really good for the guys I've gotten to know, and it's why here in Atlanta when we haven't won in a postseason for so long. I've watched guys yeah. that I really do like not have that opportunity here, and I know no matter how much money and whatever else, that's gonna, it's going to gnaw at them at some point. It's not going to be a life-changing thing, but it's going to gnaw at them every once in a while that they didn't, they didn't right. have the ultimate successes. But I, I am very cognizant of the idea that, and I've spoken to thousands. I mean, 2 o'clock in the afternoon sitting on a, in a, on a dugout bench with a, lucky enough with a Tony Gwynn and, and Tom Seaver when he was actually doing TV games because I've been in this job long enough. But the one thing yeah. that I'm very, very careful of and I'm very, very aware of, I will, as much as I can get pulled into the story, I know for a fact that if, if I get 80% of it, it's that last 20% that separates me from the guys who actually did it for a living. And I'm aware of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. And, and by the way, when you're a champion, you're a champion forever. You can't take that. They, they can't no, take that can't away take from you. No, you can't take that away. can't take that away. Yeah. Yeah, when I broke the record in 85, 85, 9-11-85, uh, I got a nine-minute standing ovation. Nine-minute mm-hmm. standing ovation from 50,000 people. Yeah. You know how long nine minutes is? Yeah. yeah. And by the way, I the only thing that I know that measures about that long in baseball history, the Mickey Mantle Day ovation in Yankee Stadium was that. Like, these people yeah. are here, and, and now I want to tell you, not only do I appreciate how well you did the job, but let me do it in a way that sort of universally is known, that I'm going to right. applaud. And I'm not going to politely applaud. I'm going to applaud. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had well, a, hell- a lot of for a lot of plateaus in my, in my career. Yeah. But nothing like that. You know, when you, when you had as many milestones that happened to you as happened to me. Right. 2,000 hits, 3,000 hits, 4,000 hits, hitting streaks, uh, you know, MVPs and worlds. I mean, all that kind of stuff. It, it just all adds up. But the most important one is winning for the first time. And, and that's it. Yeah, think about this. There have been guys who get there, don't win a World Series, but they're 23, 24, and they get this crazy notion that, oh, I'll be back. Now, I know you have to believe you're going to be back. Sure. But it ain't easy. No. 
I always said the, the hardest thing to me wasn't making the big leagues. Oh, I know the answer. It's staying in the big leagues. We're staying there. Yeah. We're staying in the yep. big leagues. Yep. you got to do something right if you stay 24 years in any, any situation. How about one-year contracts? Look, I, I had, I've had i had many. First epi- 16, my first 16 years right. were one-year contracts. Right. And by the way, uh, so Carl Erskine was the one who told me this. There were 26 Dodger minor league teams, four starting pitchers. He said, I never asked for an aspirin, let alone put ice on my arm, let alone went to the trainer's room. Yeah. He said, because I couldn't let them even believe. Twenty. When, when you tell players today that there were 26 minor league teams, which means somebody is, is coming after you, not somebody, somebodies are coming after your job every, every day. You're right. And, You're if, right. You, and if you, you want to drink. I never went in the trainer's room. We had a great trainer, Larry Starr. I never went in his room. The only time I went in there was to shave the calluses off my feet. <laughs> I never went in for an LR. That's a luxury rub. Yeah. I didn't want to waste his time rubbing me down. So, all right, we've been on the air here for yeah. two hours. Listen, this is fantastic. And by the way, I'm just glad it was baseball. So, um, stay safe, stay healthy. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Like I said, you, you, you led a hell of a life. And I think the idea that you're open to speak about it the way you just did m- makes it maybe more interesting for people who just know the numbers or just know the one yeah. story about you. So I yeah. appreciate your time, Pete. All right. You have a good day. All right, man. You too, Pete. Last but not least, our next honoree inspired fans in Cincinnati and across the country is all out style of play and hustle. A three-time batting champion provided fans with one of the most iconic moments in baseball history when he collected hit number 4192 right here in his hometown from Western Hills High School in Cincinnati. Please welcome Pete Rose. I don't know if it was not home baseball or what it was, but if you think about Oster, Larkin, Buddy Bell, Dave Parker, Billy Doran, all the guys from Cincinnati, and I'm probably going to leave some out. We all played the same way. We all played the same way. We all played hard nose. We all played to win. I think not hold baseball and still does in us when we were kids. God love not hold baseball. One more hour and I'll be home. Close my eyes and rest my for you. I was hitting for you. I was trying to score runs for you. Because I, I till this day, and I really believe this, baseball, capital of the world, is the queen city. Cincinnati where the river winds, the Mason and the Dixon We love chili. We love pizza. We love ice cream. We love ribs. And we all love the Cincinnati Reds. Cincinnati.